and welcome to the Crash Course Podcast. I'm Matt. I'm John. And I'm Steve. And it's another week, another podcast. Um, before we get into this week's content, which I'm sure you guys are waiting for with bated breath, um, <gasps> we're going to uh, talk a little bit uh. about the 24-hour plays again. Um, back on the 17th of November, I had the privilege of volunteering again for the 24-hour plays um, with Urban Arts Partnership, the 24-hour company, and Mont Blanc. Um, they raised a lot of money, like they always do, for their um, program, which is always great. It's for underprivileged youths, getting the arts education that they need to succeed. Um, there was a great student performer, I believe his name was Alex, who did a monologue about a conversation with a friend of his, but it was only his side of it, which added a little humor to it, promoting the program, um, talking about what he does, and it was a very well-delivered monologue. Um, the musical guests this year were... Um, Andre Day, I don't remember the other names at the top of my head. Oh, uh, Brian Terrell Clark and Charles Jones, which is Andre Day's keyboardist. Um, the three of them sang at different intervals, sang together. And um, one of Andre Day's specialties, which was pretty cool, is she sang several rap songs, but in a very big band kind of broad vocal style. Still mm -hmm. doing rap for the verses a little bit, but mostly for the courses, going to this kind of big, belty, big band sound. It was really cool. Big, belty, big band, hip-hop, swing, all that. Pretty much, yeah. Boy, actually. That's actually kind of cool. Yeah. 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 Um, I was, I, I mean, I went to the 24-hour plays last week. The, well, you, uh, excuse me, last, um, last year. That was in April. They do this every six months? So the one you went to was the musicals. These are the 24-hour plays on Broadway. You went ah. to the musicals back in April. Gotcha. So ne next year in April, we will be doing the musicals again. Cool. These were just straight plays, but we have a musical performer perform between each play to kind of break it up, you know, so they can set the stage for the next play. It's the same company that puts it on, so, right? Yes, correct. Interesting. And who did you meet this year? <laughs> there were a few really cool people who were in the play. Um, tons. Of, it was actually a really great cast. Justin Long, Peter Dinklage, Sam Rockwell. Um, I'm going to blank on names now, but it was it was really actually a very solid ca cast. Great writers again this year, like Jonathan Mark Sherman, who I reminded that I had asked about the podcast and then him to come on the podcast and then flaked. And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I totally want to do it. So in, in the new year, we will have Jonathan Mark Sh Sherman, a uh, profound and wonderful writer, on the show at some point. Um, he seems very eager to come on. I remember uh, the, the, the one I went to featured such uh, esteemed celebrities as Constantine Maroulis, the fifth contestant uh, from the third season, American Idol, I believe. Well, with the musicals, it's different. It's big Broadway musical stars, not necessarily just straight-up celebrities, you know, or actors. So sometimes the the people in New York who are doing the shows locally aren't as big a names as people who are known worldwide who do Broadway straight plays. Gotcha. Um, but we've had some great and big talent. I mean, uh, uh, what the hell is his name? From Chuck. Blanking on his name now. But the lead from Chuck, yeah, I know. I can't remember his name. And I tortured John with the fact that we were buddies for so long. I'm not saving you on this one. No, it's fine. Um, was in the musicals um, the year before that. Um, but yeah, the 24-hour the plays went really well. It was a blast. The shows were really well written this year. They're, like Sometimes there are ones that aren't don't hit the mark as well as others, but this year they all really did. Um, my favorite was written by Jonathan Mark Sherman. It was a play between a father, son, and the girl that the son brought home. Peter Dinklage played the father. Justin Long played the son. And Justin Long's um, girlfriend or wife, I can't remember the actress's name, played the girlfriend. And it was this great exchange, and it was very funny and very well done. So, um, but yeah, it was a great show again. Busy, exhausting, but totally worth it. Well, that's 
always worth promoting, even if it's a, what, a week plus now past yes. the date. <laughs> but Urban Arts Partnership does some really great work, and I think it's important that people know that also you can still donate to them. Um, they got a grant from the government, but they need to raise a certain amount of money for the government to actually fulfill and match that grant. So they're still accepting donations. Please look into it. It helps people get into the arts who otherwise wouldn't have the access. It's got Peter Dinklage. It will be awesome. It's true. He congratulated me on my engagement. That was pretty neat. That I'm so freaking jealous. You meet uh, Zachary Levi. That was the name. You meet Peter Dinklage. So all the shows that I got into and I'm in, still into, even though... Chuck has been off the air for a few years and Game of Thrones isn't coming out till spring. You get to meet people I love. True, but it's not actually about meeting those people, although those exchanges are cool. It's mostly about getting the work done. It's not like I get to hang out with them all night. Yes, nice. but you get to shake their hands or say yeah, hello or wave to them. Of course he's going to congratulate no, you on course. your engagement. I mean, <laughs> who wouldn't do that just because no, they're in a position of celebrityhood? Yeah, well, there are some people. Like, there were other celebrities who were there. <laughs> I'm too good to wish there, you the best. There are other celebrities, though, who do the show and who are very kept to themselves and who don't really talk. Like, Sebastian Stan from the Captain America movies was there, and he was very kept to himself, very introverted. You know, I said hi to him at one point in the elevator, but he wasn't really much of a conversationalist, which is fine. They're there to do good for the arts and... They may not want to chat, which, and they're also trying to memorize a play in four hours, all their yeah, lines. Yeah, yeah, timing and whatnot. So, you know. But um, enough about that. Um, I'm always proud to promote it, though. I'm very proud of it, um, especially since my fiance is one of the founding members of the 24-Hour Company, so I always like to give them support in the work they do. Um, but let's move on to this week's album, which John has brought us. This week's album is by a band originally called Delta, just a symbol, um, a symbol which actually means change. Eventually, they termed themselves Alt-J, which is a key code for most Macs, which creates that Delta symbol. Ah. Uh, the band itself it was formed back in 2007 when uh, Gwil Sainsbury and Joe Newman got together, realized they both liked making music, got a couple other guys, Gus Unger-Hamilton and Tom Green at Leeds University in England. They make this band, and because of where they were, it, it created a very specific sound of what they can do. They couldn't have bass drums. They couldn't have very heavy bass reverb or anything like that. So that wasn't able to be present in their practice sessions because, well, they're working in the university, they're working in the dormitories, so that didn't become present in their music. That's interesting. So c constriction actually helped forge their sound. Yes. It's actually it, it's a very unusual story for how... A sound specifically yeah, no, in, came to be. In general, it's just either, you know, trying things until they work or a propensity for a particular environment. But that's interesting that it came out of a necessity. And then back in 2012, they won the Mercury Award, a uh, British award for best album of the year. One that actually does entail a monetary uh, uh, award along with it. They got like 20,000 pounds or something of that sort. Um, plus, everybody who wins the Mercury Award just destroys on sales. They, they, they always go up when, when something like that happens to them. That led them to becoming sort of celebrities. This had a very averse reaction, which caused one of the founding members, Gwil, to actually leave the band. He couldn't handle being a touring artist. So now they're down to three members. And this is what set up the sound of what they created in this album, because most of the album was actually recorded just the three members during touring of late 2013, early 2014. So this album itself has a very interesting story about how they came to be. Um, a lot of reviews and a lot of people who talk about this 
actually say that there's a huge tonal shift and that there's less emphasis on the guitar bass that Gwil was supplying and now more on Tom Green and the drums that he does. Uh, it, it all led to a very interesting experience for the band itself and I'm kind of uh, just confused as to why I never heard of this band before because for the past three or four years they've been kind of big. And as it seems there's a reason for that, perhaps? <laughs> well, it, we're going to get to this song specifically later on, but the one-hit single in the United States specifically, Left Hand Free, was specifically made to be a one-off single in the United States. Yeah. So you get uh, their name out there, I'm guessing, and kind of hook in the... I'm trying to think of the word for it, but, you know, people who are easily hooked in. It's just this idea of getting the people on that first note and pulling them in without any other investigation. Just, oh, this song's catchy, I'll buy the album, kind of a thing. Which is, it was the second single, and it was a song that they threw together in 20 minutes, almost literally, mm. and the U.S. charts loved it. And that was that track specifically. No, no other track, though, was really like aimed at a particular demographic. In general, they're just doing what they're doing. Um, but... Obviously, a lot of these tracks came from touring as well, I think. Yes, uh, most of just, it was made during the 2013-2014 touring schedule that they went through. Well, they got an interesting sound, um, and it's very unique. It's also very, you know, we throw around these words a lot. Words like introverted, words like downplayed. I, I think in general that would apply to some of these songs, and also perhaps their personalities as a band. This is a band uh, that I think you mentioned earlier, you know, really enjoy the whole popularity thing too one much. Of the, if one of the band members is going to leave on it, uh, yeah, yeah. They weren't they weren't huge uh, uh, media mongers. Yeah. Have we at this juncture mentioned the name of the, the album we're doing this week? The name is This Is All Yours. Well... Okay. well I just wanted to make sure that we covered that part. <laughs> it's kind of an important part, but then again, there is the title <laughs> yes. of the podcast. So... This album is extremely popular. Uh, this Is All Yours is, I believe, number one in the UK at the moment, or if not at the moment, at the time that this it podcast is released. It was not too long ago. Down the list, it premiered number one in the UK, uh, number four in the US Billboard Top 200, and in the top five in about 10 to 15 other countries. Uh, that's uh, extreme. <laughs> so I don't think we've we've even uh, come close to an album of this scale before, even though we've probably reviewed more popular artists. You know, usually they're not at the top at that particular moment in, in time. But there are probably exceptions to that. Like, I would imagine Beyonce's album went number one. It's oh, that, that, was, that was probably the only exception, in fact, right, just because. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I get your meaning. Yeah, but, you know, this is the kind of thing. I consider this to be somewhat of a culturally encapsulating record, just in terms of the overall style. And we'll get to this stuff in a minute, but let's just start out with intro, and let me give you a little breakdown of the kinds of things that they do, the kind of tricks that you can expect. To start out, we get some pretty interesting vocal harmonies. They use their vocals as if vocals were just the components of the keyboard. And in addition to that, you also get sort of a faint, either a keyboard sound or, or a guitar sound in, in the distance. But what you get here is these vocal harmonies formed by divided ranges. Uh, one is more in the mid-range, one is more in the high range. Uh, more of a falsetto, kind of. And the low takes the D here, just to open us up. It kind of repeats that very robotically. You see a lot of editing in their work, robotically all throughout just, you know, straight 16th notes. The high end takes the A. It's a little bit more punctuated and key places in the measure to give you this, this rhythmic groove. But together, 
their effect is just this simple, almost barren perfect fifth. The only reason you even get a sense that this is in minor, specifically, is when the low vocals dip down to C, forming this sixth. And the fact that that's C and not C sharp gives us a sense that we're in a minor home here. But now we start to layer things gradually. We push this along by not adding new tones quite yet, but instead just expanding the register. The tenors step in with a lower D, so we're getting a little bit more filled out here, a little bit more broad. And then we get the new tones. This winding down to, the per to a perfect fourth on the B to the D from the sixth, which is kind of an awkward move pretty early on in, in the record here, considering this has been very broad and accepting thus far. This is kind of a, 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 a clinch move, because the B even isn't even in D minor, so without any other context, it just feels raw and almost unmusical, until we get some context with the keyboard. When it drops down to the G, gives us this full-fledged first inversion E minor, and then the high E clinches it down to an E flat, giving us this even more eerie augmented chord. So we're already getting this uh, deeply personal up in the first, you know, 30 seconds of the record. It feels very acapella-esque. It's probably done in mixing, but it gives this semblance of acapella, at least in this, this vocal, the vocal styling. And then once the synth comes in, it kind of builds it out, as Steven said. Let's get to that synth just really quickly here, because after this sort of goes through this cycle and it returns to D minor, this time with a few more filled out chords, you get some deep strings, um, and at this point that acapella seems to be sort of expanding this, this, this basic rhythmic figuration. Then we get that synth, which is odd. It, 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 it steps in with this ancient flute sound, even though I still believe it's just a synth. It's, it sounds like it could be either that or like a high pitch on an organ. It's, it's wonky. It's, it's bizarre. It's not expected. In fact, it's, it's, it's almost right out of left field. But at the same time, um, the way it meshes into the harmonies, the way it actually builds upon what was previously there is, is very dynamic. It's very dramatic. It does a great job of elevating a lot of emotion into the song, which up to this point, no lyrical content. At the same time, it keeps it from becoming very high, very energized. It still has a very endearing quality to it. Yeah, it's, it's endear. I mean, it has... It has sort of a character unto itself, but you're right. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not overbearing by any stretch, but it's really more about what it yields us to because we, you know, we get that sound and it's it's it has kind of an odd odd resonance to it, but it comes across as more of a more of a solo than anything else. And then it's accompanied by actual singing this time, but still not really lyrics quite yet. It's like just making noises with his mouth for the sake of it. It's it's like a, a But it's very harmonic. It's just not it's not actual lyrics. To be honest, th this this stepped in with a layer that I think um starts to starts to define this record a little bit to me. It comes across as almost this uh this Celtic tribal song. It yeah, I I, it's, I, can, I, I can hear influence here from post-rock bands like Sigaros in, in this, this, this style, the way the vocals come across, it seems to be crooning nonsense, not to imply that, of course, you know, what uh, they were singing was nonsense, but actually sometimes it is. Sometimes they're singing, uh, sometimes Sigaros is singing Icelandic, and sometimes they're singing their made-up language, Hopelandic, and this almost comes across in the same manner. It feels very, very fueled by, uh, 
by this in, intense emotional story and this this yeah. arc that goes along with it, but you're not really getting a sense of what that is yet. You just you just get the the sense of it. You get That's a vague it. emotionality, but it's not not there. It's you you can get an idea of what they're feeling. It's just there's no logic behind it yet. Well, right. there it's it's um, no defined brushstrokes in their their tapestry work here yet. It's just the general moods and colors they're going to be using here, which creates a setting without the story as of yet. Well, it also makes that E minor shift that I, I uh, told you about earlier, and then to follow that, the augmented shift, all the more harrowing when it's combined with these vocals, as opposed to when it was just the, the bare bones intro. Instead, what you get is like this, this sort of imperfect, uh, at least specifically on that, on that shift, on that pivot there, it's like imperfect instruments coming together to, to, to form this new chord out of the old chord, but they're not up to speed. They're not high quality instruments. They're not right off the uh, the assembly line. It's it's ancient. It feels handmade. Even though the majority of this is still driven by that overlying electronic sound, it's really just the vocals that makes this sound uh, as raw as it does, and that's chiefly because it's not saying anything yet. Yeah. This could be you know this this could be in some kind of ancient film at this point. It's setting you up for that kind of. Uh, that kind of environment. But shortly after these kind of, gut, not guttural, but very broad mouth sounds start coming through. Well, after the muted, uh, distorted lyrics. Yeah. Oh, no, actually, the muted, distorted lyrics, I believe, are when we actually start getting, yes, getting words themselves. Right? Working my way towards is where we actually start to get some actual lyrics, but it's still mixed in with these other vocals. It's not on its own. It's, it's also good that these lyrics are repeated. They don't actually go into any sort of structure or verse course or anything like that. The 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 really, I don't know, almost destroyed uh, content work of these lyrics means that we're still working primarily with vocal work. But you can hear every other word just poking through every once in a while. <laughs> and the funny thing about these lyrics is that they, they in content, they seem to step away entirely from the, the, the very atmospheric... Uh, broad open chords open atmosphere you know that the, that the music is trying to convey you you feel that ancient feeling on one hand and then here in the lyrics you get escher wanna draw shit i pop clips bitch i draw my piece to my hip escher wanna draw shit i pop clips i mean interesting shift it, but it's, it's almost comical in context with everything else but, but the music but, wasn't didn't hint that no the, yeah the, the idea of i draw my piece to my hip it, i mean Peace has a normal connotation of being a weapon of some sort, usually a gun or something like that. But here, it's it's the instruments. That's mm -hmm. what I'm seeing here. His piece that he brings to his hip <laughs> is the guitar. Uh, and then explain the clip line. I pop clips? Music? I guess. I don't know. It's a loose metaphor at best. I mean, you're right. It, no, that's that's fair. It is very loose, but I see it. It's I see it. I didn't really have to think twice about that. I yeah. pop clips. It's basically what you're imparting. It's a weapon of sorts, and that's the ammo. But after we start to get lyrics here is where I start to get my first kind of problem with this song. Let's talk a little bit about the interlude that comes after this, because it's just, I don't know, it, seem, it doesn't go anywhere. It seems kind of pointless, and it doesn't really add to the song. The, the instrumentation shifts so hard and then it doesn't do anything and it just it I don't know it feels like it shouldn't even be there the final jam no no right before the final jam oh the interlude yeah, yeah that was an oddball the one that steps in right before we get this this 
Final Jam, which actually I think is, is much more in line with the uh, environment that they created. But as far as this, you know, it couldn't have lasted more than, you're right, 20 seconds at it most. Short. It was pretty short. But it stepped in there, and it's just this interlude. It seems like it's in, in, in major... And you're right, it doesn't really belong. In general, this is really exploring minor kind of territory here. The only real major that we get is these uh, pivot chords occasionally on, on, on C major, but that's just that's just a pivot chord, that's just for one moment. Here, we step into like a full section where all of that instrumentation that they've been slowly building kind of just steps away and we feel it more, more, more the drums at this point. We feel more percussion-y, um, but that's it. That's really it. There, it doesn't seem married at all to the rest. Uh, it doesn't really seem like it's tantamount to a solo, I don't think. No, it, it couldn't be a solo. It just no. doesn't make sense in the construction. Um, I mean, but but then it does give way to a final jam that I did enjoy. I like that the, the groove it kind of started to build, but I just wish that... that like, that interlude could have been removed, and I don't think it would have hurt the song at all. I really think you it would have You wouldn't have noticed really, it. Yeah. In fact, it would have made it a lot better, because you wouldn't have had that, that question mark. You know, that's the thing. They're trying very to, awkward. They're trying to pull you this way and that every once in a while. But in general, this has been a very slow-to-build, you know, controlled track. But these are the kind of things you can expect from... Well, first of all, from just alternative music uh, to begin with. A lot of times, that's the pitfall of alternative music, and you have to be aware of that. They are very much tuned to ideas as they come to them, and a lot of times, they will make use of them on the spot. Regardless of whether they felt married or not, it's a cool idea, let's use it. May have been how this found its way into the territory, but a lot of times, that also works to their advantage. That's where we get this final jam, which... Uh, stepped in with a new instrument, first of all. We get uh, this, this stringed instrument, which is kind of... It, it sounds guitar-ish, but again, it sounds a little more ancient than that. It comes across as almost like a, like a, like a Greek lyre at, at certain points. Anywhere and from that to maybe even a more modern version of a sitar, and you just can't place it in there because... And I, I cited, I cited are... Celtic, uh, Celtic connotations before, so I kind of want to throw it... You know, if there was a stringed instrument in that department, like I, a dulcimer could dulcimer, fit. Dulcimer, sure. That could fit. Anyway. Anyway, yeah, we don't know exactly what it is because, well, we weren't there in recording sessions. But it it comes in utilizing a much more exotic scale within this, this minor framework. And within that, it really plays around with rhythm. You get these little flourishes here and there. And it's just, it's a blast to, to outro this intro. And this is, it almost becomes a jam, but it becomes a very controlled jam because instead of just... Uh, trailing off or really yeah. getting wandering and absent-minded in its idea. It just it's reinventing the general riff that it, the song originally presented, and it it just keeps expanding upon that idea. It keeps it from being too out there. It keeps it still. You still have a touchstone of what it's doing here, which is what I think makes it work all the more. Yeah, I, I um I think actually this was a this was a perfect intro and it makes sense even just to call it intro. It it really sets the stage for what this this band is capable of doing and the mood that they're capable of setting. This this expands as of the second track, Arrival in Nara, um, which is pretty interesting considering that I I, uh, I, I I heard this track literally hours after researching the Nara period in Japan, which is in somewhere around like 700, 800, 900 in that department. So we're talking really ancient Japan here when Nara was, I think, the centered capital because of the uh, king or warlord at that time. Anywho, it was considered a golden age. That's just a little uh, tidbit. Not that this really has anything to do with the lyrics themselves. I believe that this was written, again, as we said earlier on, just because they were touring in Nara, Japan at yeah. this moment. Um, 
That said, it's hard to kind of not separate yourself from when you say a rival in Nara. You kind of now want to superimpose a, a, a Japanese setting in, in your musical tones. But that's yeah. not exactly what I heard. Well, I think it does convey, though, an arrival. Like, the emotionale of the music is this arrival, this this coming to a place, this kind of opening up to a thing kind of a thing. But here's the thing about the manner in which they do that is very minimalist. Well, I mean, I don't you think you just, get this grand arrival well, by the, any stretch. I didn't say grand. I just said arrival. You it's, get this. Well, that's very broad. It's very much a beginning of a journey. More, if that's you're going to say ancient, you, it's more of a story's beginning. That's why, uh, especially from that, that simple pluck that gets um, combined with that piano later on, I just see it as the beginning of maybe uh, a, a Brothers Grimm. That's the thing. Maybe I a would... fairy tale. Maybe a... a Aesop fable kind of an idea. I don't know. It, it feels old, but it still has a, a very... If, if the opening credits was intro, this feels like the very first scene of a story being set up. Okay, see, that's it. First scene of a story being set up. That I agree with. I wouldn't say beginning of a journey, per se, because in one sense you say, all right, well, arrival in Nara, your journey has ended to arrive at this point. It seems like the culmination. In... In some sense, it almost feels like a like a returning home, but you, you do get these musical uh, tones that give you the impression that the story is building at this point. As I said, it starts out very minimalist. You go through these slow-moving piano intervals, accompanied by a very, very light guitar, still an electric guitar, so it's, it's not entirely—we're not in, like, acoustic t territory right here, but it's so dainty it might as well be. It's generally a slow waltz. That's what we get in this track. And the chord changes throughout this, this vast intro of this track, because really you could consider almost half of this track to be an intro. The chord changes are absolutely beautiful, but again, this pattern is really, really long. For so few textural changes, uh, few melodic, you know, from melodic inserts, you don't really get much melody here. You don't really get much, much rhythmic changes, apart from just the, your, basic, your basic waltz feel. These are all pretty stagnant elements, and the chords themselves feel kind of imprecise because you're really more moving through intervals than you are through chords. It's still leaving that, that, uh, that interpretation to it. But all said and done, it's incredibly gorgeous, and I kind of like that this, this sort of took it down a notch after that big grand jam we got at the end of the intro. This is, this is really that, that, that introverted tone that I was uh, expecting as early as the beginning of intro. Well, yeah, it really solidifies an emotionality that we're going to get throughout the rest of the record. This kind of somberness, but not necessarily depressing, just kind of a mellowness, a, a coming to this kind of slowdown, this kind of taking a slow, relaxed, mellow look at an introverted life. It's through that kind of a perspective. It comes across at times very sweet, but uh, with the vocals on this track, it's also, I think, very impactful and powerful to convey this kind of emotion. And this is the first time where, uh, once again, the vocals, like the previous track, are not the easiest to understand. And this is something that I think is very alluring for this band as a whole. The, the fact that you kind of have to puzzle out what some of the words are, and when you do get them, it can be a, an, an aha kind of a moment. <laughs> but the vocals here are just so eerie, amazingly eerie, but still lighthearted enough that I'm not being disturbed by it. Well, the other thing is, by the time we actually get vocals here, you know, once we enter this verse section, there's a much more solidified chord progression. This is, this is a lot, 
this is a lot more straightforward. The earlier portion, we were kind of just meandering around this, this, this idea. It's almost like the first half of this track is like an overture to the eventual verse that follows, which is your standard four chord progression, kind of falls its way down starting in E minor, down to D major, down to B minor, and then finally to A major. And it kind of repeats that cycle over and over again. Um, talking about the lyrics themselves, which is what you get over this, as she submarines, the rope loops round her feeble feet before the dawn breaks on her sorry grasp. In a blink and in one motion, rope constricts, rips her toward the ocean. She never finds her bearings, sucking splash into her lungs. Though I cannot see, I can hear her smile as she sings. And though I cannot see, I can hear her smile as she sings. Not a lot. Not a lot, but still paints a, a, a minimalist but a beautiful picture. It's, it's an interesting it's, picture. And it's a snapshot. Than and else. one of my favorite aspects of this was the pacing in that in that final line. I can hear her smile as she sings. It's that pause, that inflection mm-hmm. between the words that really speaks volumes for what they're trying to do here. I, I fell in love with that line itself. I can hear her smile as she sings. It's It's a beautiful idea and something that I think everybody can identify with. It's definitely a moment where you start to explore uh, their vocal ability because, you know, you don't really get much a sense of that when, when you're just looking at intro because intro is the kind of track where the vocals are clearly heavily edited. I mean, vocals don't just robotically fuel your rhythmic figuration naturally. That's something that, that the, the computer has a hand in. This is something where they're kind of letting... They're letting their their true acapella origins come to fruition. You feel this 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 rawness and this this smooth nature, which which really expands even later on the album. But this is a, a, an early example of it, um, especially in one of the interludes here between these verses, where it's just you know hammering out the uh, one of those one of those onomatopoeia words, just ooh, ooh over and over again, and. What you get that here, you get it in A minor and then to C major, but across very, very wide intervals. And the vocals themselves at this moment start harmonizing in thirds. And it, 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 it's controlled. It's really, really controlled as they do this. So for these moments, you know, they're, again, listening to their acapella origins if they have any because they're superb. And then they step back to this very raw, open, open uh, singing in their verses. It's, it's beautiful. And then it goes into Nara, the explanation or the examination or maybe just the exploration of the city that, that inspired these songs. And this this song, from when it first picks up, the guitar has a chill that goes through it, a little a, a vibration of the notes that just I mirror. I feel a chill going down my spine every time I hear them playing it. Mm-hmm. And it captures the same soul, I think, also as the previous track. This is really born out of the verse section of the previous. For instance, we're even in the same key. We're in we're in E minor, which again, even if you you couldn't really pin this down in the early part of Arrival of Nara, starting with the verse, that's in E, and it's almost like the song just it continues directly into Nara itself, as you would expect because of the title. And another thing I noticed here is that. There are more solid melodies at at this point. It's it's not quite as meandering. It doesn't feel as much in the background. Um, it doesn't even feel as as raw. It's a little more controlled, just in a uh, just in a, a 
perhaps a single sense, but I wouldn't even put this in that territory yet. They do interesting things here with their vocals. For instance, just looking at the opening lyrics, soon I'm gonna marry a man like no other. Light the fuse, hallelujah, hallelujah. Reading that straight does not do it justice in terms of the way he breaks this down. Just the word hallelujah, for instance, gets broken down into sort of these, using the syllables themselves. That itself doesn't sound strange, except with the inflection that they use in order to do it. It's so controlled, they taper off the ends of each individual note, almost yielding silence between each syllabolic shift in the singular word. Typically, you'd get more of a slur than anything else, or a natural speak. In, on one hand, I kind of want to say that, they, that they're trying to convey the lyrics in their vocals, purely just because you're hearing them, you want it to come across. But then on the other hand, they almost see, seem clouded and obscured by the fact that they break them apart so, so awkwardly. It's not the kind of thing that I would pick up 100% if I didn't have lyrics in front of me. And that actually is one, is once again, one of the more endearing aspects of this. Um, with lines like, love, love is the warmest color. And I love the, the idea that they're presenting here. I love the connotation of just love and the color it would represent. But it's so hard to hear right away. And you, could, you get the sense of what they're trying to say and what they're actually saying, but without actually needing the words. Like you said, taking that and then running through the different segments of the melody and the different segments of the song, you're not actually getting blends right? when they shift these instruments. You're getting real big tonal shifts, but since everything tends to be so low-key, it, it flows very well without actually really marrying the parts together too, too dramatically. Well, specifically just on what you said before about this sort of like meandering around, that's one thing I noticed definitely here is that the figurations seem to be a little bit all over the place. As varying instrumentation uh, steps in, varying instruments, they step in, they, they're kind of scatterbrained. And they change this up periodically. Not, they don't keep this for the duration of a verse or the duration of a chorus as you get on, on, on many other, uh, on, in many other bands. Instead, it's several times you know, from phrase to phrase, if even, you know, within that phrase, they're still changing it up. Uh, one thing we get that's kind of interesting, just as we, just as we sort of close out the opening lyrics here, we get these little interludes that are almost Gregorian-esque. When they're just a cappella and they're just singing like maybe, you know, uh, two males at a time, they harmonize in a sense that you get more of those fourths and fifths, very kind of old school uh there's an echo filter on it for sure well, the, well the echo filter also helps when you have reverb it kind of hints that it was like recorded you know in an open space like a church uh like a church environment but it's even just the 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 chordal motion it, it comes across as feeling gregorian um but then the funny thing is they'll they'll contrast that with something very modern like uh guitar harmonics whenever they step in they're so delicate and yet they they punctuate the existing melodies you know, it's these tiny little inserts that seem insignificant, but they were kind of bind this 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 track together and and most of their work together. Their ability to play around and still make it connected, still make it related to the melody, I think is is one of their strengths. Well, one later part when they go falsetto and very, very deep bass, uh, it's an amazing level of contrast because they kind of built up to it. This was one of the few times where I kind of saw the build up to it, 
But the tonal shift from the vocals and the dropout of everything but the bass uh, threw me for a loop. Emotionally, uh, it continued the song as it was, but it was such a tonal shift that I, I, I thought I was listening to something else. I, I think that the, the word tonal shift is the wrong word to use. We need another way to describe it because the tone of the song never changes. It's always mellow. It's kind of got this sauntering nature to it. It's engaging yeah. through. It's not the a, tone does not change. It's, the sound maybe... It's, it's a textural shift te is really what it is. What we, yeah. we, we have here is, um, especially in the part that John's talking about, it, 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 it kind of drifts through these moments of just like pure acapella... Gregorian chant, you know, for just these few moments, it seems like that's all that's occurring. It's just the just the vocals themselves, and then we get this shift right after that to a section where it's just solo vocalist singing in his falsetto. Now the Gregorian section tends to be very low, very deep. This this sort of crooning, uh, even the low end of tenor, and then we step away from that to explore the high end, or you know, almost even alto practically from one section to the next. And then let's talk about what's going on beneath that in the same section. You were mentioning how it, this, this sort of uh, bass line steps in here. Well, from the interlude, where after we get that, that pure a cappella Gregorian section, there is an interlude where it's just this deep reverberating piano. And when we get the falsetto section, now it's just a single thin electric bass line beneath the falsetto. That's about as dramatic as you could get from textural standpoint, but I would still call that extremely married, just because it's delicate, it's not unheard of, but it comes across as very crooning. I I equated the sound change to, the texture change to walking through a doorway. You're in a new place, it's not the same place you were, but it's not completely unrelated. You're just, it, right. it, it, the, the instruments come in suddenly, but not hitting you with a wave of it. It's just, you're in a new place, you've moved on, but there's still a through line of tone in place. The other thing we get, um, even just in some of those uh, those verses, another instrument thrown in here, gets sort of this light organ, it seems like, in the background. Obviously, probably just a, a, a synthesized organ, but it steps in sort of offbeat, like, you know, always on the end throughout these, these, these verses. And it's, you know, <laughs> altogether, I'm just getting this sensation that there's an old world feel to this album so far. Just, just their choice of instruments is very, is very, uh, it's very deliberate. And all this builds up towards an ending that marries all these various sections that we were getting throughout the song in in such a way that it's it's such a great culmination. It it does a great job of repositioning all the various ideas in in a configuration that just. I love the composition that comes here. It's so hard to talk about this one part because it gets very complicated. Oh, then I'll talk about it. <laughs> because earlier on here, I mean, you know, as much as I may love all these disparate ideas, they do tend to have that disparate quality that still kind of leaves you in, in your Never Never Land alternative world where you're just exploring different ideas and they don't always seem married. So then all of a sudden here, 250, uh, two minutes, 50 seconds, we get what I would call the first aha moment on this album, and the first moment where the idea really does expand. And what we get is this this crash chord. It's like a B minor chord over over sort of an E pedal. And sometimes within this, it, it hints at like a full E minor 13th. Over that, we get this... I, I mean, this could be considered, this whole ending section could be considered a, a, a jam of sorts, but that's, uh, that's, too, that's too delicate a word for it. This is something that... This is the culminating point of this track, if 
if even so, it's the culminating point of this album in many ways because it seems so, uh, it seems so, so meticulous. One thing we get, work these little, these little flourishes of chimes that are then replaced by the piano to serve almost the same exact function that that chime work, that that chime work served. And then what we get is the piano going through with the various tones that comprise the full-fledged E minor 13th. And it, it's absolutely beautiful. It, it, it's these little flourishes that they step in periodically to close off the phrase. And then it'll build up again. You get the, the crash of the chord, and then it restates it again. It's absolutely gorgeous and one of my favorite parts of the album, to be honest. And then it has that little organ outro that I believe blends just perfectly into the next song, Every Other Freckle. Yep, it just kind of like... It's kind of a whirring sound. It just whirs its way out. Um, it should be it. said that every little, every other freckle is the third single from this record. So they are not on the album in single release order, which is common, actually. Yeah, and also that's modern, but that wasn't the organ sound that I heard earlier on. I think that was just a separate synth, a sort of separate synth. Again, they like throwing in different sounds here just to keep you on your toes, and it's, it's sort of this independent whirring sound that wasn't on... Um, wasn't heard earlier on this track or earlier on the album. What I love about Every Other Freckle is the intro phrasing, the way he sings on this. He he gives it, I don't want to use cadence, cadence isn't the right word, but it's Punctuation. just... Yeah, the, the rhythm in which he sings is very interesting. And I, I like it, the way he kind of emphasizes certain words. It gives it a character that we haven't really heard before. That mixed with this distorted guitar, almost grunge sound, you know, grungy guitar anyway, not necessarily the whole uh, song as a whole is grunge, but definitely this distorted guitar is reminiscent of grunge, was really great. I think that it gave it a, a certain character that wasn't so far from everything we've gotten before. It was a little dirtier, but still very introverted, kept to itself, but in a little more of an aggressive way. I also uh, really enjoy that the punctuation in the vocals are met with pretty good lyrics, too. Um, they're a little bit out there, but with lines like, I want to share your mouthful, I want to do all the things your lungs do so well. I'm going to bed into you like a cat beds into a bead bag, turn you inside out, and lick you like a crisp packet. <laughs> it's a little bit creepy, but it's really endearing, because this guy's kind of fumbling for... I love you, but doesn't know how to put it. It's, incre it's incredibly sensual, I think. This is, um, yeah, no. But it's yeah. a little weird. It's an odd angle to be taking it from. It is an odd angle. At the same time, there's something also very approachable about this, this, this track. It comes across as almost a little bit more single-esque to me. I mean, you know, the second we step out of the intro, which is sort of that, that big tribal drum opening, you know, this, uh, this rapid drum motion that all of a sudden just, just steps out, and now we're just down to this simple three-chord progression that comprises almost this whole entire track here. It's uh, just this continuous cycle of E minor, D major, A major for, then the, for two measures, and then we continue the cycle back over and over. Um, so the melody itself also feels kind of, you know... It, it feels tethered to this because that's a very rigid cycle. So of course the melody can't can't be too creative within that. Well, that that that's not saying anything. Of course it could, but still, it's it's in a rigid cycle. So it's a little bit e more easier to get on board with. They're they're not at their most uh, bizarre at this moment. But what what is bizarre is of course those lyrics. They continue on later. You're the first and last of your kind. Pull me like an animal out of a hole. And I gotta hone in on just this one moment, because this is something, whereas the main 
verse itself is not as as, as uh, it's not as oddball. These little inserts are, which sound like secondary vocals coming in to sort of you know, say this one little line, and then all of a sudden they're gone. And it steps in here with this interesting little little element. It, it vocalizes this ar this arpeggiation up in E minor, just to say that. Peel me like an animal out of a hole. And it's very rigid in uh, in rhythmic terms. It's it it's rising tonally, but it's very steady rhythmically. And it, it's, it's interesting because it's like a call and response here, as we go back then after that, to I want to be every lever you pull and all showers that shower you. It, it, it's a very unique way to proclaim a, a fascination, a, a love, a lust, an interest. Um, but I think with all this oddness, I like what the way it's being conveyed and the structure for it. I don't think it's odd in a way that's foreign or uh uh, discouraging or or off-putting even. That's what I mean. That's what yeah. I mean by it being sort of single-esque. In general, this is very easy to hop on board with it. It's got its own its own inborn quirkiness to it, yes. but, you know, this is not out of left field for anything in the modern alternative world. This is, this is very much in line with, I think, what people want to hear these days, which explains why it got top of the charts. But then it becomes problematic after this, because after the, the verse work and the, and the music that we're getting, we get this odd... Um, interlude, I guess. It wasn't really a bridge. But it's this really weird interlude that's so uncharacteristic of the rest of the song. It's very upbeat, poppy, and it's it loses that grunge, dirty guitar. It, it, the, it's got, you know, oohs and ahs and that, that kind of pop stuff that, you know, we're tired of. And it just, it seems so different from the mood that this song was conveying. This is another one of those, like, tribal sections, right? Mm -hmm. Something that was <laughs> one of the... Uh, the descriptors for this band is uh, folktronica, and I think it's 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 no more evident than at this particular moment right here, because it's it kind of conveys everything I've been saying before uh, up till now about the the sort of old world feel that sort of Renaissance feel that I'm kind of getting like Renaissance England. I yeah. mean, it helps that this is an English band, so I I'm 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 forced to kind of get that environment fed through this. But the tribal portion is almost Celtic in origins, and this folktronica seems to be kind of what they're doing because they they combine these new little elements and they get very percussiony. You know that kind of hints to the, the tribal portion, but at the same time they're still very modern and they're just kind of trying to fuse these two things together. The problem is that up until now it didn't seem like this track was really following that pattern. That was in earlier tracks, and it they didn't stepped need in. To. It didn't need to it do didn't. this. No, no. It, 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 it takes you out of the mood. It's it's jarring and not in a good way. It's not an attention getter. It's just uncomfortable. I liked where we were sitting in the song. I liked this kind of awkward but sincere love kind of description that we were getting. I thought it was very well done. And then you just jump into this thing that seems so divorced from the rest of the song. It really just takes you out of the moment. And unfortunately, the, the whole song kind of winds down from that because in general, we get we got a repetition, I think, of an earlier section, but the only thing added is this sort of odd little wonky plucking sound that, that is just this... It's almost like a... Eh, it's almost like a soloing instrument over the, the presiding verse and chorus. It seems to just sort of sit there just to change up the remaining portion of the song. It just it doesn't really go anywhere after that, and I think it kind of... Not necessarily ruins the song, but it definitely ruins it for me in the sense that 
I like the song, but this would be a song like Steve would say that I would chop out the good parts that I liked and leave out that middle bit that just didn't really have any business. It being also there. it also gets a little long in the tooth towards the end as well with the, the repetition of I want every other freckle eight plus times. I don't even know how many times it happened. Um, with very little deviation from the first inflection, besides the little bit of changes in the vocal work. I liked it the first time, I liked it the second time, but after a while, it wears on you. It gets a little bit too long. Yeah, no, I gotta go back to the, um, I gotta go back to the to the earlier portion of this track here where I think this the, it, it hit its absolute high note for me because amidst these very, very smooth vocals, what we do get earlier on is the, is one of those perfect examples of, uh, of um of of voice leading what they what you get is this little interesting element this this uh this scale in fifths where the two vocals the two vocalists stand together to first go up uh go up the scale one two three four five and one in one portion say he's on the e and then the other person is on the b and from there also one two three four five and both do this simultaneously say e f sharp g a b in one scale, and then the other B, uh, B, C sharp, D, E, F sharp. At the same time, that's a very chilling effect because one thing there is that it's a little bit off from your E minor scale, just having that C sharp in there. Normally you wouldn't have that in E, that would be a C, but instead what this is trying to do is keep it in that steady, synchronized fifth motion. And for the purposes of interludes, it is absolutely gorgeous just to, um, provide this this uh sort of you know ooh over and over again between these two sections one of my favorite moments on the album and it really pushes it along at that moment it's just a shame that it wasn't able to to return to that in any kind of big way or find some culminating portion for the last third say of this track no yeah the last sort of track doesn't even really go into the next track that well either and this is that oddball we talked about beforehand it's the second single left hand free this this is what John was alluding to as the big U.S. single. Now, I will say the first verse, I love the inflection. I love the vocals in that first verse. I love it in actually every verse, but this song ended up actually being a formula. This song was first time they're showing a pop structure where they go from verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It's got a 60s, 70s rock feel. It's you know got a little bit of a country twang, but it essentially sounds like anything you would have heard out of that time period. Me and Steve were struggling to name a specific artist, I think because it's just an amalgamation of that kind of sound at that time. I mean, I heard a bunch of things. You know, you yeah. could hear a little bit of Rolling Stones, you could hear a little bit of Bob Dylan in this. Uh, it's, it's, it's got, you know what it is? Probably it's has got a little that, bit of Who in there. Sure. It's, it's got a very bright guitar sound to it. A very, very bright, which is indicative of classic rock, and, and particularly the southern folk side of classic rock. Um, even on the modern uh, side of things, although they went kind of in a different direction, but one of our modern indie bands, which we reviewed as early as episode two, was Caves the Elephant. And I kind of get that uh, in, in, in the vocal specifically, because it kind of has that, that whiny drawl to it. And this is very contrasting, I think, to what I mentioned just as recently as the last track, which is uh, sort of deliberating, you know, how exactly do they want to convey their vocals? Do they want to be on point and and convey their vocals, uh, the, the lyrics themselves, as if you hear every word right on the dot? Um, do they want to be succinct or do they want to be slurred? That's the question here. And 
they had been pretty succinct up to the moment, uh, with the only exception of the fact that they jump around tonally, and that kind of provides another layer of, uh, of confusion, I suppose, as you're trying to, to, to figure out these lyrics just audibly. But in this case, they go the other direction. They completely slur everything. And that doesn't seem indicative of their style at all, because mostly they're very smooth and crooning and precise. And now all of a sudden, it's, it's you know, it's... It's sly. Well, Say, so just, well, just look at the first lyric, for instance. Hey, shady baby, I'm hot like the prodigal son. And it's the, his inflection in saying this, you know, prodigal son, it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's got a Snoop Dogg-esque almost. It's got a little bit of a, of a, it's a, a lot laziness more, to it. Well, it's, it's more nasal than what we've really been getting for. I think that, that was the yeah. major difference there. And while, I, like I said, I really, really like this, but it's very out of character. Exactly. That, coupled with... The attitude in the guitar, I mean, up until this point, guitar wasn't attitude. Guitar was texture. Guitar was brush strokes. Here, it's in your face, and it's... It, it's cre- a- it forges a strut from the get-go, and essentially that's what you get for the remainder of the track. Emotionally, it doesn't match up with the rest of the record either, which was disappointing for me. You've gotten this somber, you know, kind of just mellow mood most of the album at this point and this totally breaks away from that it's strutting it's confident I think that's where you're also getting that Snoop Dogg sense in his sly lazy Mm -hmm. singing he's always got this innate charisma and confidence and that's nothing that we've gotten before we were just talking about this awkwardness to convey emotion and now there's strutting confidence it just doesn't make any sense it's also the way the words come across rhythmically convey the same exact uh, convey the same exact thing, not yeah. just the guitar, but um, right in his vocals. So apart from just that, hey, shady baby, I'm hot like the prodigal son. And then the next line, pick a pedal, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and flower, you're the chosen one. And again, this is this is so, it's very tight. At the same time, it is slurred. It is a little bit lazy. And, and the funny thing is, I got to go back to, to sort of choice in terms of this song, because... You mentioned that this was uh, the intended single for U.S., you said? Yes, and the U.S. ate it up, and I could definitely see why. This is this is an earworm. This is a song that <sighs> is really catchy, but at the same time, it it's, it's just not befitting this album. See, I, I guess, you know, as a... As an American, maybe I find that just a little bit offensive. Not of, not because of not not from them, not from their end, but you know, for for the reason that a label would sort of market this track and saying that ah yes, Americans will eat this up. You know, that's kind of Southern folk. It just it seems to embody them. Well, you know, I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> it doesn't well, really define me per se. I was far more interested in what they'd been doing. But you're not the majority, and they're focusing the ma- mass market majority, which is I, I even disagree with that assessment. But, of the no, American wait, 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 it's, it's wait. A Demographic for sure, but but and I'm I'm one of the only people associated with this podcast that I think routinely listens to radio work. Um, I've heard this song before. I've been hearing this song since August. It's been playing a lot on all channels on the radio, and the very fact where I went, oh, oh, this I know this band now. This is the song that I know this band from. But at the same time, I have no idea what this band's about from this song. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's misleading too. I that's think that's just the thing is that if you're going to say, all right, well, let's go for a you know hot demographic ready, uh, you know, ready to make number one kind of track, you you think they would choose something a little bit more more related to to what they do. For instance, you just said, well, I'm not the majority, but I guarantee you, I'm probably considering I was enjoying what they did. I'm probably a member of a of a of a still vast demographic here in in the states that 
would eat up what they'd been doing so far, and they could have found something a little bit more accessible in that department if they were going in single, in, in the single direction. Yes, I, I totally see where you're coming from, but I think ultimately this song, for all of us on an album level, was very disappointing. Frankly, the only verse I enjoyed was just that opening verse that I, that I read straight up. The rest really failed to live up even from that, even from that perspective. It, it didn't, it didn't come, it didn't have the same strut that I still found worth noting in that first verse, despite the fact that we, you know, weren't really looking for that here. It was still cool. John's right. I think it is an earworm. The fact of the matter is it just the rest of this track kind of failed to live up to that same thing. The chorus doesn't have the same catchiness. They enter in with this long, drawn-out gospel section um, where you you feel this, like, the, the, these gospel chorus kind of step in to, to, to repeat and, and, and double up with the chorus for them. Um, and you know, the falsetto enters at the same moment, and it's just, it's its not really worth it for me. But we do end up with a palate cleanser in the next track, Garden of England, Interlude, where instead of being drawn into a further expansion of Left Hand Free, or even towards the end of Every Other Freckle, we get a, a, a composition of woodwinds. It feels very old-timey, very Renaissance almost, Renaissance Fair kind of style. It's uh, woodwinds, could be flutes, could be... I, I think it is flutes. Flutes, pan flutes, something in that sort of general vicinity. It, but is, I think pan flutes is a, is a pretty good assessment of what this is. Again, a lot of times with it, when it comes to ancient instruments, you can't always pin it down unless you're an expert in the field. But it seems like they're fulfilling this even more so. They're going deeper in this direction. It strikes me almost now as, a, as somewhat of a patriotic album at this point. You know, not just the fact that, oh, they're English. You know, they made this and it seems to use English themes. But... Not, not for nothing. <laughs> it really does seem to be going in that direction. This is straight out of... I, I, I'm visualizing the English Garden. They titled it English Garden. They're utilizing sort of fugue-like techniques. It's very pastoral, and, well, the English, they love their gardens, and it, it kind of puts me in that in that environment. I want to experience this, this pastoral uh, sensation. And by keeping the beat a little bit higher than what the album started with, uh, not the beat, the instruments themselves, but expanding it without overstaying its welcome, the song really does allow you to dive back into the album. Um, the next track, Choice Kingdom, even starts with wind, with the wind noise, which I think is a direct nod to the previous track. Yeah, and it, it goes back to that mellow sound. It's kind of got a, a droning to it, but not in the staticky sense. Yeah, he, well, here's the thing. That drone, to me, uh, kind of steps away from mellow a little bit because the drone is kind of eerie. It's this sort of wind-whirring sound, like like the whistling that you would hear through, through, through a window that has just a crack in it. On a very, very windy day, even though the window is closed, you get sort of a whistling. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a little bit unsettling that like there's something on the horizon. Beyond that, the melody's true, do have the same uh, pastoral mellow tone, but they clash is the thing. I think that's intentional. Though. Oh, of course, they clash positively. It's an interesting choice. Is what I, I'm saying. I said Pink Floyd. Uh, Storm said Radiohead. Radiohead. I mean, we were both basically talking from the same direct lifeblood of this song. It's it's got that, those staggered syllables that are very reminiscent of classic rock. Well, not quite classic rock. 1970s classic rock. And very sweet harmonies that that single notes can really draw out such 
almost scary levels in this song. Well, here, that's the thing. The, the melodies are comprised of very, very short notes a lot of the time. You just take the opening lyrics, your choice kingdom, their voice, hear them, our choice kingdom. Lots of times, it's just one word or one syllable, you know, in, in the construction of this, this melody itself, except for chord changes. Something like, he'll stay on the same word, um, same, same note throughout, I mean, I mean same, same note throughout the end of this phrase, and then on the chord change, then he'll just change the note slightly for the next phrase. What I also really like about the vocals and the way he's singing here is that he, he knows how to really use pauses, and, the, and this band conveys that both musically and vocally, but what I really like about the conveyance of the pause here is it adds more to that Radiohead kind of feel, that very contemplative feeling. You know, you pause singing a lyric and leaving a breath, it gives contemplative contemplative space, especially when you're dealing with this kind of music. And you get that again in the interludes, like something they did earlier. Again, it's just using a lot of just, you know, ooze over and over again. But they harmonize for this. They step in with thirds, and they do really nice flourishes just between phrases here. Although, in this case, I would almost cite these ooze as the chorus itself. They don't strike me as interludes. They strike me as, like, the focus. Because later on, when we get the sort of, I guess, the focus section, Rule Britannia, bright ideas hide in caves. Rule Britannia, break a stock into a slave. Rule Britannia, leave us planked before the graves. Rule Britannia, ruler of the waves. I mean, here's again that, that sort of patriotic swell that you get. At the same time, this whole section feels a little bit departed. It feels like the bridge almost. It feels if there was a it feels if there was like a a, a tonal focus here, it would actually fall in the moment when they're harmonizing sort of in thirds up and down that ooze over and over again. Um, and then uh, either with that, and I think also following it, we get this sort of organ overtone with these like bongo rumbles and a, a little guitar undertone next to that. Um, and that will stay on that section and also for the next verse itself uh, before we finally get that bridge. But it's hard to really, it's hard for me to decide what is more the focus unless they're just equally focuses. <laughs> Obviously, be. we get more content later, but... Well, it could be just the, the, the speed of his pronunciations, of his syllables, is, is so dramatic. It's hard to focus on any one thing in exclusion to the others to make a hook. You don't have that in this song. You just have one solid piece as opposed to a verse chorus kind of a composition. I mean, for me, I'm just really drawn to that rule Britannia other than anything else in this track here. It, it, the way it's spoken is like with this, this weak, almost broken falsetto alongside these very light piano accents. And as I said, it comes across so patriotic, almost like, almost like there's, a, there's, a, there's a stiff upper, upper lip while, while, uh, while, while reciting these lyrics, it kind of brings a teardrop to the eye, you know. Well, but I don't think it's that out of place because after that we get an instrumental bridge that is full of hope and this kind of inspira inspirational feeling. So I think it was kind of building to that. It, maybe not lyrically or even tonally initially, but it, it does carry through with it and it leads that into the, into the bridge and the outro. So it conveys that patriotism, I think, still. It, it might feel a lot of place for the theme work, but, but I still think at least it's consistent within the track. There may very well be some irony here, though. At the same time, I'm poised to feel a little patriotic. There's some 
something in the lyrics that also make me want to say that there's a little, there's almost some subversion going on at the same time. You really read into that, you know, rule Britannia, bright ideas hide in caves. It could, it, it could comes be. across as a little bit cheeky. Yeah, and I um, think I think that it supports both. Honestly, I think it could just be sincere, but also you can look at it with a little tongue in cheek. Yeah, depending on how much how much you want to look into it. Yeah, it's um, I mean it. <laughs> It's called Choice Kingdom. We're getting a lot of English overtones here, so it seems almost like there's there's some uh, some political, um, but it, you know it's not it, it's not detailed enough to really read into. All you get is just a sense of something. Um, I get a sense of both patriotism and cheekiness at the same time, and maybe that's that's the intention itself. I do think that starting with that sort of eerie wind whirring sound, where we're not getting just this pure anthemized track. Otherwise, it would be an anthem. We wouldn't get this this slow build up to this final bridge that still feels kind of weak. You know, it's it the, again that falsetto is weak. You're not getting the full chest filled uh uh air that you'd expect to come from say uh, a national anthem or anything. Instead, there's there's just this 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 weakness to it, like something is missing in in this uh in this picture. Well, from here we go to um, the first single on the album. Which I, uh, up to this point, has become my favorite song. So it's called Hunger of the Pine. Um, and we already start the intro with this repeating tone. Kind of sounds like it could be a bass, but I don't think so. I think it's just a deep keyboard tone that's repeated over and over again. And vocals come in right away as well. It's a droning metronome orientation. I, I really don't know how to describe it other than that. At the same time, we're getting almost freeform poetry on top of it with the way he, once again, is using his pacing and pronunciation to screw with the vocal work that he's doing. That, coupled with the standard, not well, maybe not standard, but his use of inflection, it's incredibly enticing. It's a shame that this was the kind of dead-end single from this song that really didn't make this it This would have gotten shows. me more into this band than the actual Oh, absolutely. Song. I mean, first of all, we... More exploration here. It's a lot more electronica driven. We get There's this more synth. It's more synth. We get this repeated tone over and over again. Kind of, I mean, it's just the straight up. It sounds very electrical. It's it's not it's not just like synth. It almost sounds a musical, you know, just to begin with. But you just get this sort of one, a two, a three, a four, over and over again. That kind of rhythmic pattern, and then over that, this solo vocal melody apart from that that rhythmic pattern, and the the quality it's true it's all about the inflection here but also maybe about the accent it has kind of a brogue to it as he says the words sleeplessly embracing butterflies and needles line my seamed up join encased in case i need it and even just the, the inflection right there encased in case i need it and he kind of tapers off just that phrase with this brogue. It's an indefinable brogue. It may just be for 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 the sake of uh, well, for the sake of musicality. At the same time, it it also conveys that that removed nature to this track, whether you're interpreting interpreting it as as removed, temporally speaking, or removed in terms of place. It feels foreign. And beyond that, we get even more interesting things in this song after the verse work. So the chorus work leads into a sample, actually, a female's voice, which I couldn't actually identify at first. But I find out from John, it's actually Miley Cyrus. She is a huge fan of this band and actually has previously sampled uh, a little bit of their work from their LPs. 
in her live shows. So they they kind of started communicating with one another. And from the song uh, 4x4 or 4x4. It's 4x4. Um, she has a line, I'm a female rebel. And they found that the it, the, the inflection she uses was so perfect. They contacted her and was like, can we sample this? And they're like, yeah. And the use here, coupled with Hunger of the Pine, the actual uh, chorus that they're building to, it's it's downright awesome. It's, yeah, it's it, really, it really phenomenal. It really adds a dynamic to this chorus with that sample that I wasn't expecting, that I really enjoyed. Well, it's an interesting choice. I don't, I don't know if I'm quite as 100% on board with it as you guys. I mean, it was cool, but I, don't, I wasn't sure exactly how it, how it contributed. In some ways, it feels almost like, a, like an insert idea. You know, I like the way it was mixed together, but I also like the way the song was, was existing without it. I think it's more about the way the, the soundbite is supported and surrounded by, um, by the saxophones that step in here. I think that was a little bit more interesting to me. When the saxes step in, they start... They start gradually bellowing these these sort of long droning tones, and then over that you get I think other saxophones. They may even be like you know there may be a combination here of a tenor and an alto, where the tenor creates the long droning tones, and then these altos step in with these higher ones that sort of overlap, kind of like a call to arms or even like a, a call to prayer or something. Something about this sounds very militaristic, and that's the context in which uh, in which they bring in. Her, her soundbite, I'm a female rebel, sort of mixed over and over again. Even later in the track, it starts kind of breaking that apart into just, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a female rebel. And, you know, I, I guess in some sense that conveys this, this, this militaristic feel here. It still feels kind of patriotic, but also a little bit, you know, not everything is settled at home. Yeah. sort of sensation but that, but i don't know it could have done without it in my opinion it was it was it was nice but it was more of an eh idea for me i i did enjoy it especially towards uh the end of the song where they they uh sample from french and have a, a pair of lines in there that get repeated somewhat mm. uh which i'm not even going to try to say it in french but it translates to a great hope has crossed the earth a great hope has crossed my fear which I don't know where they got that from. I feel like that should be really, really deep, and I want to know where it came from. That is a, a very interesting, just phrasing. Well, that relates kind of to the hope that you know that I I felt sort of toward the end of the last track because that last track ended with a bridge that felt very hopeful, following you know the however you want to want to place it a a a, a, a cheeky. Um, patriotic track at the same time it ends very firmly in 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 hopefulness and I kind of get that from this too almost like there's a, a, a sense of conflict between here you know I'm, I'm pulled in one direction and another with this at the same time I think I think they're doing it pretty well at the moment um, this song trans transitions pretty well I mean it doesn't actually there's not really a transition it kind of ends but then we get another song that while mood wise fits the album very well sound wise is a little bit different but not jarringly so we get warm foothills this is the closest we get on the whole record to straight up folk music it's sweet it's beautiful it's rustic feels like you're in the farmland countryside and just from the moment it starts you kind of just get enveloped in this this location this setting i feel the foothills i feel the warm foothills yeah. the warmth of the said foothills it's uh it's very, very delicate. Probably the most delicate we've had on the album thus far, although I think we still have another 
delicate track yet to come. And it just begins with this repeated phrase over and over again. Again, this single, very light guitar line with some chorusing in the background. Ooze. Yes. Just ooze. Over and over again, as we get a lot of that on this record, but always different each time. And then, as we step into the verses itself, it's Wait. kind of something dramatically different. The, before we step into the verses, I do want to say one thing. They okay. have pauses, and it's those oohs with the light guitar where you have a moment of dead silence. Right. Which is very, first time I heard it, actually was very jarring for me, and I wasn't enjoying it at first. But upon repetition, the second, third time I listened to this song, it felt, it felt a lot more in line with how the song ended up becoming. True. Well, you know, it's interesting. Actually, I, I think that's not a bad observation, but I, I had a bit of a different interpretation only because when they stepped in with this uh, this new section here with the verse, it felt kind of, eh, it felt a little bit divorced just from the intro itself. But then again, you do get one, well, there is one piece of continuity, if perhaps not from the, the musical texture, then it is definitely from uh, from the from the lyrical content, perhaps, if if you interpret, you know, warm foothills, not just establishing your setting, but for instance, a romantic setting or a, a home-filled setting, then let's just take apart these lyrics. Dry dunes cater for jumping boys. From the, nape, from the nape of her neck, he made his descent. They watched men hurl from rock to sea, like sternum to button, lined lip pinches in between. First of all, that's just magnificent writing. I love that the... the, the Imagery. The, well, the imagery itself, and and even just the, um, the the sonic qualities of lined lip pinches in between. That's beautiful. Um, but the most important thing about this verse is the way it's separated between the two vocalists themselves. They trade off almost every other word between male and female. Very romantic, very wholesome, and just very plain and simple. Happy. This itself still continues to hammer home that, that warm foothills feeling that the intro conveyed, and this, even though it's different musically, continues to convey. And it is a, a, a big difference between the two vocalists, and it's not just alternating between words or syllables or pairs of syllables. It's also those little moments where they start blending in. One trails off into the next word when the other one comes in, but ne neither really completes the phrase. It's a great instance of harmonizing that just they decide not to do with the rest of the track that I love. It's a great manifestation ma manifestation of editing, which I don't often encounter. Frankly, I can't think of a time I've ever encountered it. I mean, it's a duet, but you couldn't get any more duet than this. It's typical, for instance, to either double together, maybe trade phrases, certainly trade verses. These are the common things you get in duet. I hardly ever hear this you know, mid-phrase. From word to word, it seems like they trade off. And it's, it's again, it's, it's something in the editing. Probably what occurred here is they both sang their separate parts in two separate tracks, and then they were spliced accordingly and fit together. And even so, just from an editing perspective and from an execution standpoint, it, it comes across very effortless, very beautiful. There's even whistling. And I've said in the past, I'm not a big fan of whistling. And it is very simple work, but it's so perfect it for matches. this. How, how, how could you not whistle in the warm foothills, you know? It, it, it very much matches the mood. And, and all in all, I think, emotionally, this is one of the strongest tracks on the record. Because 
you just feel a warmth inside you just listening to this track. It's hard to even ignore. Well, let's also go to the chorus here, because this is this is an interesting moment uh, for this track, because it's a very basic track. It's really just, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And I hesitate almost to call this a chorus because it's just so short. Your foothills, you're warm. Your foothills, you're warm. Literally just those, those two words. And I interpret it almost like this. That the your foothills portion of that phrase is more of a pre-chorus than anything else. Because it clenches up here a little bit. Sadly, you just get these, this, court, this pivot chord here that's kind of a, a little bit of a dark moment just within this. And, and you get this little melodic flourish on, on foothills also. You know, just across the syllables of foothills, expanding that, picking it apart as we come down to your warm. On that phrase right there, we settle completely into the chorus and it yields to something far more positive. Um, at which point there is sort of an instrumental portion to follow. And that continues that, that, that very positive, uplifting chord that fell on your warm. So what we get is kind of an instrumental chorus here. Um, you're just excluding that one phrase. You're warm, and then instrumental chorus before we go straight back in with your second verse. And then we get that repeated over again. Although the second time we get the pre-chorus and the chorus, it's filled out more broadly with strings this time. So it's a very expansive track, and I think it serves as conveying that very simple idea expertly. And that's one thing it actually is. It tends to be very instrumentally just simple, and it's be... It's because of the lack of complexity that I believe the, the vocals become an even greater impact. Yeah, who would want, you know, complexity in a track like this? That would completely defeat the purpose. The so. complexity is all located towards the end of the track, towards the outro. That's where they try to expand a little bit and to play around with things and to build it up a little bit more. But I feel like it's not even a culmination at that point. They're yeah. just It's just expose at that. Even that, that's just layering. You know, it's not, I almost don't want to say complexity. When you add on the layer of strings, it just serves to make something a little bit more broad. It doesn't, doesn't really make it more inherently complex. Again, that's not the goal here. No, it was definitely the goal to keep it simple, sweet, and beautiful. And that's exactly what this track accomplishes. Yep, romantic, wholesome, and happy. Now, the next track, The Gospel of John Hurt, is an interesting little song because the song <laughs> itself is based upon John Hurt from the Alien movies who gets that chest burster out of him. Yes. As of the first is, film in 79. This, this is also the... Yeah, and it's it, it's one of those things actually... Uh, sorry, I had two trains of thought at once. But it's one of those things though that what disappoints me about this song is following Warm Foothills obviously we're not going to get the same track again. So we're going to go into something a little more intense, but drum work is really interesting and I don't know if it's interesting in a good way in this song it sounds like a drum machine I don't know if it was because I heard cymbal crashes but that could as easily have been edited or created electronically too but nevertheless it's it's pacing very much sounds like a drum machine it has this when the vocals come in shortly after the drum intro you get this digital digital effect on it that's not really an auto-tune it, it's more it's of a, not, just a like a heavy warble or a, just a sort of a robot yeah. trying to emulate the the vocalist's actual tone. I'm not a big fan of this. It's just the whole song at this point in the very beginning just feels so insincere. It feels like this forced kind of futuristic sound that just seems so bizarre at this point. It's just there's nothing leading up to that. Um, and it just also feels very cold. And for 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 one thing about the rest of the record is that even though there were very somber moments, you never felt cold or alone. You felt very 
still like grouped together, this introverted, like keep to yourself, but you didn't feel empty and cold. And this song delivers on that, and I didn't really like it. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the album. I guess it fits the content of the song because, I mean, what well, colder yeah. of an environment do you get than the setting painted in in Ridley Scott's 79 movie, <laughs> Alien. I mean, you're in the middle of space and there is a menacing creature that you know absolutely nothing about and uh, little do you get to know about that creature before he suddenly bursts through one of your only seven crew members' chests. Well, I love the movie. I think it's a great film. I think this is an oddball track just coming from this band. I guess they conveyed it well enough at the same time. You might as well just go back to the score of that movie, which I think conveyed probably better than anything. But at the same time, one of the musicians, I forget which one, says, everybody kept telling him, write what you know, write what was, it, what was impactful for you. That was a scene he lived with his whole life as something that touched him in a very specific way, that stuck with him. So from the standpoint as an artist, he's doing exactly what people will always tell an artist to do. Oh, I respect that 100%, and I, I agree with the whole write what you know thing. At the same time, you know, it's you have to establish weird. a voice. And I think that in, in with the this may very well have worked in a different context, and it works as sort of a separate piece of pop culture fandom. Um, but on this album specifically, it's just it's a little bit of a, it, it's a takeaway for me. My major gripe with it, beyond all of that, because it's not even a poorly made track, is it's just flat. His vocals are very flat comparatively to the rest of the album. He doesn't do... If if it at least had the interesting vocal work that we've been getting the entire record, I may have overlooked how bizarre it was on the album. But the truth be told, it just doesn't really have anything going for it, except for the fact that it's an homage to a great movie and a great actor. But and, a, and in and of itself, it's still a pretty good song. It just has no place on this record, and it's kind of... It just it took me out of what this record was trying to convey and build to. Well, you're right in terms of the vocals. I really didn't see anything in the vocals in this track worth noting particularly, but there were other things I think that were worth noting. For instance, um, uh, these sort of weird sound effects. Again, not that this band is averse to weird sound effects, but they were really appropriate here, and they were very different here. They step in as these weird kind of gurgles that come across as sounding rather alien, and they... Uh, they come back several times here, and there's even other sound effects that step in. Weird, weird sound effects. They go kind of off the wall here. Um, if I were to pick up any par other parts other than that to really promote, I think, in this track, it would probably be the guitar interlude that you hear on the final pickup uh, as it leads into the, the final chorus, which is sort of this guitar solo section. But I would call it a pickup only because, especially, you know, from... from 350 on we move sort of toward like the 410 mark maybe a little bit before that and then there's this pivot chord here which is it's a really really cool build up to that final chorus saying oh coming out of the woodwork chest bursts like john hurt coming out of the woods and it it, it was a very it's a very climactic outro, actually if i had only one problem from this moment on it's that they repeated the outro too much i mean that final chorus is it's the whole remainder of the track, and it's a rather long track, I think. It ran. Or it seems so. It it definitely dragged on. It, it it felt long, and it just I don't know. It just it, I don't think it should have been here. I think I would have loved to see this on like a tribute to Alien album. Like this would perfectly fit on something like that, where a bunch of bands come together and write songs that emulate a movie. 
or it could have been it could have worked with a different conceptual idea it's still within the same vein as alt j but it's a different character than what this album was 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 uh showcasing i again respect his his desire to go toward um to to write what he knows and obviously um well just sort of play fanboy to this movie that I happen to love. I kind of liken it to uh, something else that's going on simultaneously right now, which is uh, Les Primus and, uh, excuse me, Les Claypool and Primus's release of uh, the Willy Wonka soundtrack. Almost all the tracks there, well, they're now covered by Primus, which is one of those things like, I want to hear original Primus songs. I don't want to hear their take on Willy Wonka. Now, of course, that's covers. That's a different kind of thing. This is an original track. It's just based on surrounding this movie. But I kind of want to hear him go deeper into his own, uh, his own stories here that have been building, although in, in perhaps not the most directive ways, they have been building. And I want to go back to that. And if you want a story that is truly as deep as this album can possibly get, and as truly as deep as the band seems to be able to achieve, Pusher, which... Is track 11. I, I, can, I can only equate this song to a previous song I have loved, and that is Evergreen from Scale the Summit. Scale the Summit, uh, the album was Migration, and we reviewed that back on episode 67. Check it out. And if you listen, have been listening to us for over a year, you would have heard our last year's year, uh, uh, year in review wrap-up, and I chose Evergreen as my favorite moment. Because that song, for being over a minute and a half in length, was an amazing crystallization of an idea. And here, I would say it is as good, if not better, So this song, Pusher. This song starts with guitar and vocal. That's it. We just get some vocals... That he's been rocking the, the whole album the same way. Oh, not even the same way. It is so dry, so soft. You have to strain to hear every little just letter as he's saying it in the very beginning. And the way it just ebbs and flows back and forth. And the guitar is doing the same exact thing, but at, at completely different moments. It's an amazing duality of just, just warmth and, and silence. In combination. I think that's the thing. Um, that's what really separates this, uh, separates the vocals apart and separates the, the guitar quality apart is because here, they're really going full force with a singular idea. That's why I can't uh, go with you, Matt, to just say this. It's the same vocals that he's been rocking. Granted, they've been rocking well, but, you know, there's, certain, there's a certain tendency I find with this vocalist to kind of ride the line a little bit. Uh, we've seen several instances on this album where they, they're they not quite going full-fledged toward the the all-encompassing single territory. Even their singles here don't often sound like everyday singles, with the exception of uh, of the one that was marketed in the U.S. But most of these are tend to be very wildly unique here. Um, but even within that, he kind of rides the line in... in Reaching over to his audience, but at the same time also coming across as as as, as unique and 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 uh, and um, introspective. This particular track, it goes a hundred percent toward the introspective side of things. He's exploring much darker territories, even if just from a melodic standpoint. And within that, we get it's really all about the inflection here, the 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 vocal inflection, the intonation. 
and the articulations in every single component of this phrase. They are absolutely superb. It stands on its own, and the melody is insanely gorgeous, but along with that, it is joined by this one other instrument, just the lightest, most delicate, coffee shop quality guitar that you could possibly summon. And within this, there is such control here. Moments, for instance, within this, that he'll get extremely soft, you know, pianissimo, pianissimo, <laughs> you know, keep on adding very, 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 very soft as far as you could go. That's about how soft he gets, and he'll do it in the middle of a particular phrase. It's like this parabolic motion where he starts out with a little bit more force, and then in the midst of this phrase, because it is a little bit slurred, it seems a little bit weaker, he'll die down a little bit before finally just rising up again. It's this kind of articulation that I think is worth noting that I have not found in, in, in vocals, I think, to date in the albums that we reviewed. I There's plenty of other aspects of vocals that I would tout, but this is something that I is, is wildly unique from my experience. I meant that emotionally his vocals are conveying a similar thing, not necessarily his vocal style. And I apologize for that miscommunication, but I think that the way he's singing to convey comes across so much more strongly because it's just vocals and guitar also. Yeah, it just really, he... he, he I think he found his stride with this track. I feel like this is something that, even though his vocals have hit other very superb moments, again, they often are are highly uh, edited in certain moments, or they would come in in those various interludes that I noted as sort of, they seem like instrumental tools at this moment. Here, it is so, it is so fragile and human that, you know, <laughs> This comes along like once in a lifetime for an artist to really tap into that level of emotion. And again, what in general is a very simple track, but the lyrics themselves, you get a lot of content. And it ends with uh, my favorite lines of the album. In the song with the, my favorite lyrics of the album. Are you a pusher or are you a puller? We could hold hands for 15 minutes in the sauna. We could hold hands for a pool length underwater. I can push and pull her. And that emphasis, when he says the word her, with that pause, with that breath, that kind of an idea, I, it, it, it's always going to get to me. This is a word that will always get to me every time he utters it. And it's funny because even within this, you know, I mentioned that he has a bit of a slur here, which, as I mentioned earlier on, as I'm kind of pivoting back and forth on, that he doesn't always tend to slur his, his lyrics. At the same time, if you'd expect that if it's slurred, well, then it's, it's, it's imperceptible. Here, it's slurred, and yet it's incredibly perceptible, and you could follow along with the song very easily, and several lines will just, will just uh, crash right through. Uh, that's a perfect example. Um, another one, even earlier on, just, uh, I believe this is just a straight-up chorus, are you a pusher or are you a puller? I pull the weight towards me, and I lack the zest of a lemon looking forward, unless I have a woman pushing me. Is this very open, kind of heart-wrenching, uh, sort of a diary entry. They'll just read a couple more here, just because I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by his turn of phrase. A canopy of red-billed quillea passed over the blue, a five-hour flock. Not one dives down, to tell you the truth. As night falls, a quillea crawls, and whispers on his last wings. So abundant are we, left alone I shall be, but a weighted phone never rings. This is 
pure poetry, and it could exist almost without, uh, almost without the music itself. But the fact that the music comes along with it kind of propels uh, a whole, a whole other level of uh, of emotionality to this track. Well, this track is clearly the most personal track on the record, hands down. It just it gets in deeper, and there are some other songs that get pretty personal, but this one, for sure, it just it digs in there. It 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 really locks in on what he was trying to convey, I think, on a lot of this record, where it comes to love and affection and want and not being sure and being unsure, but it really hones in here, and you get a sense of exactly how he's feeling. And yet I'm not saddened by this song. Well, it's not a sad song. It's it's still, for all of the, the lower register that he's working with, for all the straining of of hearing his voice and the cracking at times of, of what's going on with both the guitar and his voice and the little bit of piano that comes in later on. There's another thing I very little rather liked. Very little, but it is enough there to just go, uh-huh. It's, it's not hopeless or sad or depressing at all. It's just so in, enlightening. It's sincere, too. Well, it's also kind of conveyed by that first, the opening line and the final line. If you're willing to wait for the love of your life, Please wait by the line. You know, it is uplifting in the sense that it's 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 uh it's not it's not dis- despairing. I think as as many songs it's of this caliber would probably be. It's very frank. It's not. It's not. Um, the the sincerity leads to just being very frank, very matter of fact. Well, I really shouldn't interrupt that phrase. Actually, um, if you're willing to wait for the love of your life, please wait by the line. And you know, dis- uh, dispersive prisms, rainbow, but. My native optimism isn't broken by the light. My native optimism isn't broken by the light. You can't get any more optimistic than that. Nope. Um, But yeah, it's frank. I think think this is just an expertly done song. If I could, I would just give it a five stars on on the dot. Um, If we did songs, and that will come in the year-end review when we come across to it. But uh, one other thing, just just to note as we move into uh, track 12, Blood Flood Part 2, is also the piano comping that enters in this track. I really don't think should be overlooked. I'm glad John mentioned it because that, that again, is an expert in, in, in delicate approach where you're just, you're not trying to step on the toes of the primary melody. You're just trying to sort of get it in there and shape out the final form of this song, which is why in many ways it's very appropriate that John uh, compared this to Evergreen because, well, that was that uh, Scale the Summit track, and it too was very minimalist. All it had in it was just the bare bones bass, often using uh, bass harmonics. It was practically a solo piece. Well, in this particular case, you know, we get, (laughs) it's not a solo, but it could practically be a solo. It's just the single vocals, but with just that that minimal uh, guitar to shape it. And then in addition to that, the piano, which seems to, I don't know, it caps it out really well to me. Sometimes these things serve better than a pure solo would. Um, it's it's a miracle that Evergreen was able to do that with just a bass, but with this, I think it's 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 perfect the way it is. I agree. And it, it, it smoothly combines or moves on into the next track, which as you mentioned previously, Steve, is Blood Flood Part 2, which is actually a second song. The original Part 1, I guess, Blood Flood, was um, on their previous record, and so this is their sequel in the vein of Unforgiven and Unforgiven 2, like Metallica, how artists tend to create sequels to songs. And this song initially seemed to be building upon Pusher. 
It Part had of a striking piano, uh, piano chords in it, but they didn't really flush out. They were just very in, in the moment. It was almost, almost para, uh, paralleling the ideas that was in the previous track, but this song just takes a huge turn after the first 25 or so seconds. Well, even the... Even, I think even with that, I, I forget whether it was the beginning or maybe after those 25 seconds, you get sort of an electronic beatbox. That, yeah. to me, is, is well, it's world from Pusher. Um, but beneath that, we get some other nice things. We get these kind of droning strings to start out. Um, and then melodically, we're kind of back to something we had earlier on the record. Uh, I forget exactly which track, but the phrases were very, very short. Um, and in this case, we just get heat shimmer, hips quiver, open smother, lipped lover. Again, really, I love their turn of phrase here, but it's very, very short, very concise. It's back to sort of, I think this this is really a good example of what they've been doing uh, predominantly on the album. They're very good at, at doing this kind of thing and, and, and conveying lyrics, being succinct, but also uh, not being overbearing. But then the funny thing is that when we move into the next verse, um, it's a little bit more of a continuous melody, more of like a ramble. Dead in the middle of the C-O-double-M-O-N, little did I know that the Mandela boys soon became the Mandela men. Razor blades on a melted, on a melted toothbrush, slash, slash, assassin de la police. <laughs> and when it's performed, there's no pauses, no breaks. No it's pauses. It's fluid through, which is interesting. We haven't really heard anything like that. Mm-hmm. And then I think over this, the, uh, uh... Well, it was either there or it was after that, because maybe the heat shimmer was the chorus. I forget exactly, but we get these sort of slow falling chords throughout all of this. Yeah. So you know, there's uh, there's some interesting things here. If uh, there was something though that kind of take away is that I I really don't see much of a hook here, which is why I don't think either one of these particularly uh, grabbed me as as a as this sort of focus chorus. Not that you have to have one necessarily, but what I mean by no hook is that there's really no part here that I'm I'm going back to that I find myself drawn in on as as at least had been uh, uh, present on every track so far. There's at least one section that, you know, I, I just had to go back to, had to had to repeat. You're trying to hear it again here. It's the one element that I think could have portrayed that, and it was kind of upsetting that they, they removed it so quickly, was the piano. The piano was forming to something powerful and it does come back but it's because it, it tends to not be coupled with the vocal work which they've shown works very well in what they're designing musically it just lacked that that wow factor on on so many different ways the well, musical interludes were just safe i guess for them very safe but something else about that piano that i gotta note because I, i'm not sure if i was 100 percent down with its its presence to begin with i know this is kind of a contrast to where we've been because in general the piano on this album has been pretty superb even though it's been sort of thin i like it when it's thin but here i don't know there was something about this it's kind of like that thing i go back to the the solitary piano in an empty auditorium not that it's playing solitary at this moment but just that particular track here is is conveyed with that with that um with, with those inflections with that uh type of reverb you know it seems like it's inward it, it seems like it's slow contemplative but like inward trying to be outward it's trying to also be a little bit grand a little bit a little bit connected to their audience maybe still trying to have that 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 single concept just keep it in mind you know keep it in sight at least and it seems like they're doing both of this at once. And I'm trying to come with come to terms with with 
with what they're doing here on the album by not going full-fledged with toward one or the other. Because in general, it seems like a no-brainer that this album is absolutely best when it is its most inward, a la our previous track, Pusher. I think that, for me, the big problem here is that we're not getting anything new for the record either. This sounds, I mean, the technological kind of side of it, the almost electronic sound is very familiar to what we had in Gospel of John Hurt. I'd say in theme it fits more to the album than Gospel of John Hurt did, but still, sound-wise, I'm not getting anything that different. And, like, if there's something they've perfected on this record, more or less, is keeping us interested in being unique per track. And this time, they just, it just felt repetitive. Well, there is only one thing that I could think of, and that was just maybe the horns themselves. It seems like here they were including a full-fledged horn section that were kind of a nice addition to the final stretch, just to kind of beef it up a little bit. Um, it gave it a majestic tone, but all in all, it like it, we've had majestic in other in other ways on this album. Yeah. So you're right; it's just a, a, a different element to achieve the same end, and perhaps that's why it didn't come across as, as terribly unique for this album. But that brings us into uh, track 13, Leaving Nara, obviously a reference to the earlier portion of the album when we arrived at Nara and we talked about just plain old Nara. Um, With this track, I mean, I guess we could say at this point it's the conclusion. We do have a track after it, but this more or less feels like the summation of the record. Um, But we're having another issue here. It's just, at this point, I'm not getting anything new. They're doing things they've been doing on the whole record. In, instead, this is of, very uh, similar to arriving, which might be on purpose, but it's it's not just similar to arriving. It's similar to many of the themes that they've created on this album, which makes it a conclusionary paragraph. It's it's a summation. That being said, I kind of didn't want it just a summation. It goes through the same sort of flowing between different thematic ideas as Nara did, and back in track three. Same even lyrics, had, even. Yeah, you know, uh, Hallelujah, Bo- Bove, Alabama. <laughs> that was back in, in Nara. Hallelujah, Bove, Alabama. And then here, and actually, same thing. Something Steve said that was actually kind of on point is I was saying it did have a warm feeling, like wrapping you in a hug from someone you love. But Steve mentioned it was kind of a needy hug. And though he was cracking a joke, it's actually kind of appropriate. I feel like this song's existence is to kind of kind of really bring home the theme but almost like I I need you to get this like almost in an awkward uncomfortable way which fits to the record but it it feels almost forced it's not awful by any means but it definitely does feel a little forced if it was separate from the album itself if it if Arrival Nara and Leaving Nara were one two three in a row it could have done a great impactful job but there's just so much of this dispersed throughout the entire album that bringing it together, yet keeping them as separate sections, not really doing the blending that we had already gotten in so many other songs here, it's, it just doesn't quite have an impact that you're looking for. I mean, you know, I, I, I almost wanted to retract the, the needy hug comment, but at the same time, you're, I mean, you make, you make a good point. It's, it's, I don't want to, because I keep making these allusions to uh, to introspectiveness, introversion. You know, I feel like these are very broad words that really don't do this album justice. I'm sure there's a I'm sure there's a point beyond this, but I really am just focused on this this concept that I I I, I, 
I've been saying the past three tracks now that there are a few tracks in this album that as broad and sweeping as they can be, sometimes it feels like they're somewhere between inviting you completely in, or rather being being selfish, which is not a bad thing. Being so selfish as to be so introverted that you kind of want to know more about this particular uh, personality, and then on the other hand, being so accessible, being so relatable that it's kind of being a little bit more outstretched and not so inward such that people can, you know, dive right in immediately. I, I kind of like when they make you work a little bit because it's always curious. I want to know more about the personality. Something, you know, a little more single-oriented doesn't make me as concerned about the personality. And this is one of those tracks that is just smack dab in the middle. I'm not you know, there are other things that can be gained, for instance, of the more accessible track. Things like uh, the fact that you could probably explore more just in terms of musicality. A lot of times, and if you go into an introverted direction, you're leaning towards perhaps a more minimalist direction, right? Not as much exploration in the music end. Well, on the opposite side, you can really explore. This is just sitting between, where we get a little bit of both. I feel like it's still kind of inward, but it's not... You know, it's not 100% accessible. There's something still very dark about this. Bove, Alabama, I'll bury my hands deep into the mane of my lover. Bove, Alabama, into the arms of the warmest color. But that's a little bit vague. Yeah. Just a little bit. Um, at the end of this track, we get about a minute to a minute and a half of silence, which is the universal sign for hidden bonus track. Which we get. Um, and if you listen to it on Spotify, as we often encourage you to do, that track has a separate track and a name. It's Lovely Day, and it's actually cover. Um, Steve, you had told me the artist that it was covered. That uh, was Bill Withers. Bill Withers. So n I think none of us have actually heard the original. So the best I can say for this track is it was, it was very pretty. I liked it. I thought that they did a good job with creating this song, but I can't compare it to the original, so I don't know if it's better, worse, and different, I, I'm not sure. From the tone of the album, especially now having gone through the whole album, I mean, what can we say, but they all jayified it. Yeah. You know, and, it and sounds it very, very consistent with their tone, which I've been been loving in very distinct moments, but let's face it, as far as a, a mood, um, a mood change is concerned, this is just like a continuation from, from leaving Nara. I feel like I'm yeah. in the same place generally. I owe the same compliments, perhaps also the same critiques. And uh, that that's it's a kind of a stagnant place for the album as we close out. Well, and the problem and is they have that that minute and a half gap, and then we go back to what we were just listening to. It's not like it was so something completely different. Well, that they it's did that it's spacing. not just that. True. It's it has a little bit too much of a direct nature of what Alt J does when they're by themselves, when they're making their own original content. Uh, it's it's not really shrouded, and it's not really as explorative. It's in the middle, but in a slightly different way. I love it. I really think as far as a, a nice, warm song, it's great. But that's because it's an Alt-J song, I guess, as opposed to a great song on this album. Yeah. Um, I guess I will take us into our wrap-up today. I actually was poised to give this extremely high marks in the beginning. It struck me again as that very self-focused album. I'm tired of using the word introspective. We're just going to say self-focused, but I use that in a very positive sense here. It actually propelled this album, many tracks early on, 
propelled it to, uh, in my opinion, this, this, this plane of consciousness that you gather the artist is on that makes you kind of want to explore where they are right now, where they are uh, emotionally, if that be the case, where they are physically, clearly in Nara. <laughs> uh, and even though it may take dark turns on this little journey, it's kind of a personality I wanted to know more about. And then it seems like it capped at a certain point. And it's almost, it's almost imperceptible as to where that occurred. And it's, it's, not, it's not an exact place, really, because, you know, again, even in the tail end, we still get perhaps our most personal song, which is Pusher. Um, but that was, I guess, more of a special case for the tail end of this album. After that, it's really just standard fare for what Alt-J does, which is still great, but perhaps they weren't as diverse in this particular case. The album caps out, plays it safe, I think, for the modern day, and I think that's really what I'm getting to. Um, it's still a very sweeping and beautiful sound in a general sense, but many of these tracks, I feel like it's not really saying anything. That's toward the end. Earlier on, I want to emphasize that I think this album says a great deal, even if it is just from a musical perspective. I think uh, Nara itself was one of the most solid tracks, I think, on this album. Um, not counting Pusher, because Pusher kind of speaks for itself. And frankly, that, uh, that particular track is born of such a straightforward idea that it really couldn't be anything else but solid. But looking at Nara, this is a much more complex track. This is a track that includes a, a, an array of different of different ideas. And even though they may be a little scatterbrained at first, you know, in their exploration of of, of, of just the textural plane, it's, it's very inventive. It's not stuff I see a lot, even in the alternative world. Um, but that's what I was getting to. The alternative world is still, I think, very keen to accept this kind of album nowadays. It's almost... Uh, it's, it's almost in standard fare for what we want. And I think that speaks to the fact of why it got number one in the UK. Um, and well, if, if, if <laughs> the States had, had a more uh, uniform demographic, well, who knows, maybe it would be number one here. But then again, you know, there's other things that made their way over and made it straight to the top just as easily, um, even within the alternative environment. In general, it, it excels at, at these kinds of things, using oddball instruments in a extremely compositional manner, such that it comes across as being gorgeous, but also innovative at the same time. What I'm really looking for, though, the real thing that I think this album uh, is lacking in, in, in some places, but it gives me in, in others, is those aha moments. Like, for instance, what I got uh, toward the end of Nara, where the ideas are really expanded, that, that, that e you know, that E pedal, B minor chord, the piano chime work there, the triad work. This is the kind of culmination stuff that I, I perhaps could have served to be more toward the end. Otherwise, it would have left me on a more positive note. But frankly, it gave me that up front. It, 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 uh, it made me so curious with the array of what it can do. Um and all its different ventures that uh, I, I was led to that expectation for the tail end. The tail end was standard stuff, standard in, in the alternative world with the exception of Pusher. I have good things to say, but, you know, it was a little bit of a, a, little bit of a peak. I guess this all comes down to the fact that we're still in four territory. I think that's obvious. Um, 
but I, I, I think the, uh, the end of this album just disappointed me enough, with the exception of, of Pusher, that um, I'm more in the lower fours now, where I was in the higher fours. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conclude this with a 4.4, maybe just shy, of the, just shy of the upper echelon. For me, I mean, it's weird. When I was listening to this record, and I gave it quite a few listens uh, over the week, I was conflicted. I didn't enjoy it at first. Like, there was enjoyable stuff. I was in the same exact situation, actually. But I mm. couldn't, I just couldn't put my foot on it. I just, like, I couldn't figure out why I didn't like it. But I think I know why. Emotionally, it's very disjointed. And that's on purpose. The awkwardness that's conveyed is intentional. It's part of that self, that introversion, all that stuff that Steve had been saying. So I'm not going to harp on that. So I get that. And I think in the vein of uh, what was the album we did with the Wall Street Players, um, oh, Paper, Paper Chase, Chase. You're, you're meant to feel these things. Episode but, 29. Which is great if the album conveys that. But it doesn't always. You get songs like The Gospel of John Hurt, you know, and, and Lovely Day, and, you know, and some other stuff throughout the album. The, the, the single Left Hand, such and such, because I'm not looking at my notes, uh, Left Hand Free. These things take you out of what the album was trying to build to, and I don't need to go on at length because Steve hit a lot of really good points, but I don't know that I'm going to be as generous as Steve was because I think it it's not a 4.5, obviously, but I don't even think it's a 4.4. I think that they're a talented band that do a lot of great work, but from what I've heard also, this is nothing like what they did do. They changed a lot when their lineup changed, and I just, I don't know... I was heavily disappointed. I, I was expecting an emotional arc to come full circle that didn't. It was too disjointed and didn't make that point. I'll only say this one point because there was a, a I guess, um, you know, we, we like to consider other ratings in, in terms of how we justify others. And, you know, for some reason in this, the course of this album, I thought back to something like uh, Damon Albarn's uh, Everyday Robots, which he did back in episode 109, which was an album that in general had a really tight theme. You know, it was all about nature and, and trying to come to terms with, with, with nature and technology and all that stuff. It was also very light music. It was introducing new stuff, the kind of stuff you'd expect from any member or founding member of the Gorillas. But, you know, it it all really wasn't hitting some of the some of the chilling parts, the chilling points that this that this album reached. But granted this album failed in that other in that other respect, in that it really wasn't a tight, fully formed album. It didn't have this this, you know, introvertedness you know what is this <laughs> like that's a really vague way to describe something but in terms of theme this album is kind of all over the place uh, in in especially in regards to the the um gospel of john hurt it's just kind of like an idea thrown in here um at the same time you get a lot of warmth you get these warm foothills you get this sort of warm uh, rustic environment on the other hand and then in the other place you get that that, well, we were on tour in Nara. Here's an environment vaguely surrounding a place that we were at. In theme, it's really all over the place. And then in arc, it kind of fails a little bit. It's those, it's those aha moments that I think really are propelling this for me. But in general, I think I'm getting more out of fully formed ideas uh, here. Fully formed musical ideas here than I did, say, in Everyday Robots, which I rated a 4.3. I think for me, in, in, in actually wrapping up my wrap-up, I just, I got disconnected from it too much. I couldn't stay in it. it. It kept kicking me out, and I think it's because of those things you mentioned. The theme and the arc were really, dis, were really disjointed, 
And I really think that, uh, for me personally, I have to hurt it for it. But then again, also, they're very talented musicians, but I think ultimately I didn't enjoy it. And whereas, like, bands that don't even make the grade close, but I've given higher ratings because I really enjoyed it, like OK Go, which I rated fairly highly because I really enjoyed it. I just, I think here, it, it's just, I wanted more from that arc and that, and it, it thought, in the first half, I thought it was building to that arc and theme that me and Steve were talking about. So for me, it's a 4.25. It's not a 4. It's, I'm not going to punish it too hard because ultimately there are talented musicians who did very interesting things. But I think that the Swiss cheese of it all, the fact that there were these gaping <laughs> holes w was too much for me to ignore. So it's a 4.25, and I don't think I'd come back to it. It's a high rater that I think I'm kind of done with after listening to it for the podcast. Swiss cheese. I rather like that. That is a great metaphor. And... Well, I'm going to definitely be coming back to not just this album, but I'm going to definitely find their first album, An Awesome Wave, which title-wise, really, really good. This, I like every single one of these songs just about, but some of them I like in the setting outside of the album. I like them for what they are, not what they bring to the table on the macro scale. And I think that's the best way for me to sum it up. It's it's not a whole. Swiss cheese is perfect. It's <laughs> I love a, Swiss cheese. <laughs> well, no, it's a composition to some extent with some of the things that are thrown in here. Left hand free, blood, uh, blood part two, leaving Nara. I mean, I think things could be jumbled around. I think the Gospel of John Hart is is great for what it is, but for the album is not so great because I think it's having a little bit of an identity crisis when I'm comes right down to it that said there are three songs here that i am thoroughly in love with which i think are five card star songs that's just the thing it's, it's hard to say well yes you made five star songs but you're not even close to a five it's a contradiction it hurts it hurts a little bit but i think matt's in the exact right spot four two five it's it's lack of cohesion hurts it more than just dropping it down to a four or five, which as we've spoken mm -hmm. in the past, is where we start getting our point ones and differences there. But there, its lack of cohesion in its identity is more dramatic than just dropping it down to a four or five. It's, it's a great sophomore album from a band that lost a quarter of its identity in losing one of its bandmates. Is a band that has self-proclaimed to dislike the limelight that for a while none of the band members were actually giving photos or interviews because they just couldn't take it uh they they said as a collective that their first album winning that mercury award was traumatic more than anything else in hindsight because well they view themselves as normal people who just so happen to make music and all these other individuals were saying no you're rock stars now and they didn't know how to take it and yeah I guess that kind of comes through very strongly for the band itself. And I like the fact that, well, frankly, they seem like they're making music that I really identify with. That I say is, well, it's sort of like an emotional soundtrack of, for me. But it's a little scattered. No, I think that's solid. I'll, I'll keep my rating this time and just, I guess, bump it up a little from you guys in the average. Um... But yeah, I think that's a pretty good wrap up for this for this album. Um, yeah, it's uh, 
it, it really lacks on the on the on the arc front, but what it makes up for in the moments. We touched on something when we were d- discussing the album, but I'm afraid we're not going to really be able to get into a, too a, in depth because I think it's a pretty breathy topic. But I want to at least broach it and and bring it up. Um, although I do like the idea of possibly discussing bands being influenced by their fame because that's kind of actually fascinating that they were destroyed by becoming famous. And I mean, look at like we've just talked recently about Weezer and other bands have done something like this. But the topic Matt wants to bring up is something. Uh, that Steve actually coined right before we started doing the podcast. I didn't coin it because right now I didn't write down the coinage. But um, let's just say this, and I think we were pretty much uh, hitting it on on the nose with our wrap-ups. Deviation from mood and style, for better or for worse, because deviation is not always a bad thing. Um, You will find this typically in in respect to any, any album that contains a variety of different styles on it. Not all born from the same genre, for instance. A lot of times people, I think people mistakenly say that a band is one genre and that's all they can do, um, or that's where they want to, to, to perceive them. But a lot of times that's not the case. Bands try, I think, in many times to be versatile. They often don't like fitting inside a specific niche, in which case they'll likely try to give you an album that has a little bit of everything problem that results from that is, of course, then you're not so much uh, supporting a particular demographic that otherwise would have flocked to and loved your particular style, however small that demographic may be. Instead, now your album is broad. It is trying to reach all the different marks, and in, in the end, you'll come across perhaps a case not entirely like today, because really the only exception to the rule was, uh, was it left-hand... Um, was that track again? Left, Left hand, hand free. free. Left hand free. Really, that's the only track that on this album seemed to drastically depart in terms of style. But you know, if if you're doing that on every single track, then you've got a real disparate hodgepodge of an album, and that's where it can really turn south. I think also the big problem, and we should fo- we can focus on at least for relating it to our album this week, the sing- the second single and a single focused for the Americas was Left Hand Free, which sounds like nothing else on the record. And this insincerity in your singles, you're promoting an album that doesn't exist. Now, John mentioned that supposedly this is more in line with their first record. Be that as it may, it's not a single for their first record. It's a single for this record. And I just feel like it's one of those songs that you take and put on an album. It, it's insincere to the full work, and we, we faulted it for that. In fact, I had a conversation with Michael Kill. It was um, an autographed podcast, number eight, I recall. I can name those for now because there's not that many of them. And they're slow going, bi-weekly. <laughs> um, but he talked about, he has a song called Martyr that he wrote over a year and a half ago. He put out a brand new record recently, but he didn't put it on it because it's actually for another record he's been working on for years. But he was thinking about putting it on this record because he's like, well, I have it. It's a release. I should put it on. But he realized it fits the arc of the album he's working on. If he put it on the Snuggle is Real, it wouldn't have fit what he was going for in that, that compilation record that was supposed to just be a compilation, not as moody as that track suggests. And I think that's, that's, that's a wise choice to make. And I think all J hurt themselves by not making a similar decision. I think also, you know, a good thing, What, just an interesting comparison here, it's kind of like a trailer for a movie. There's lots of trailers I can think of where you present either the, the funniest lines that exist in the movie, say it's for a comedy, then that's pretty much it. 
You're going to get the funny lines that you saw in the trailer, and the movie is going to be severely lacking. I can't tell you how many times I've experienced this yeah. in, in comedies of the last 10 years, where they just lump it up all in the trailer, and that pretty much exhausts the record. Now, that's not a perfect comparison in this case, because uh, this is more just in terms of non-representation. Because here, you're right, that track does not represent this album. There are two other singles, however, that do. In general, this album... Uh, apart from that one case, is very is very uh, um, stable in style. It does change up in mood, though. Actually, a good example of a movie trailer that gave me the wrong idea for a movie was Inception, where one of the first trailers was that weird 3D, uh, 3D 0G fighting scene, and you made it look like it was going to be The Matrix. Made it look like it was going to be like a high-action movie, and... Yeah. That barely touched upon what that movie did. Yeah, barely. It had no idea. No, no. It was a psychological delve into a drama, but it wasn't an action movie, and that trailer made it look like an action movie. That's kind of what this song did for this album. Made it look like a nice, high-energized pop album. Rock. Pop rock album. Yeah. With with none of that actually in the rest of the album. But in that case, only because you mentioned Inception, I think uh, that may have actually worked toward its advantage. Lots of people will just flock toward any old action movie, you know, and there's a significant demographic, although I wouldn't associate with them, uh, which it kind of is a little bit more averse to the... Uh, to the uh, thinking movie. The thinking movie. Dramas. Yeah, dramas more serious dramas you know not to say that you know in, in, inception was like high on that list but it's higher than the average fare for uh, it's not expendable too movies. yeah exactly, exactly which i i love both movies but one's for explosions and one's for leo yeah you, you pick your battles <laughs> but but i think steve you make an interesting point though in the same regard this single could have done the same it's a high energy identifiable single that drew them into a higher art that said though yeah. there were still inconsistencies on this record apart from that so, you know, I think overall what we're trying to say on the surface, because there's a lot more to it than this, is changing your mood is important. Because if you're sad all the time, if you're happy all the time, if you're angry all the time, you can listen to that. But it can be hard and doesn't add a dynamic or a perspective. Whereas if you have a few songs that change the mood, it adds a dynamic to the album that gives it weight. When you change the style on a record too many times. And not just the be- style, the identity of the artist. You become inconsistent, hard to follow, and confusing. And I think that there's a lot more to be said about that, but in, 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 in theory, at least in this point, you want to have some kind of consistency, otherwise you're just a compilation record. And if you're not releasing your greatest hits or unreleased tracks, you need some kind of cohesion. What it says, what it says is that you're only thinking short term. You know, if you're thinking within the confines of your song or of the moment in the song, well, that's great. You've mastered that version of the art. But as we've said on many episodes to date, there is, you know, you gotta, you gotta work small and you gotta also work big when it comes to music. You gotta work on the on the micro and then the macro. And the album is about as macro as it gets when it comes to music. Uh, trying to tie together your songs because this is your release. And granted, many artists don't often think about the album um, as a cohesive entity, as an as an arc. Sometimes they are just thought of about compilations. But I do think this is this is rapidly changing. Although it's kind of been changing for fifty years, it just depends on how much you want to focus on it. And I think I think we as as reviewers tend to take this pretty seriously because th- th- it's a, it's an important thing to experience an album for the course of 
to experience music for the course of 45 minutes, you know, to really to really sink your teeth into it as opposed to just, you know, listen to a song in passing and then jump around in a song in passing. Some people are more scatterbrained, some people are a little bit more immersive, and I think a lot of times the immersive art form is where you get the chance to uh, to reach higher planes of thinking, higher planes of thought, higher planes of, of creativity itself. Um, so obviously, in those cases, you do want to think about how your mood is varied. There are two albums that I've mentioned within the last couple of years that had a dynamic just by being consistent in, in tone and in style. And, you know, it's Shade for the Dark Lord's record, which we mentioned, Sick Passenger, which has that huge narrative arc and is fairly consistent. Obviously, it's all rap. But Even though the rap actually fluctuates. And in his remix album, while you get the same general ideas, uh, the arc is still there, yet the the sound is extremely different but it's still held together or when i mentioned um mc frontalot's new record which is um, question bedtime which has got that through line of you know childhood fairy tales and stories but still it still varies in style a bit but not so drastically it still stays within the realm of nerdcore rap but he's changing tone from song to song giving you these kind of this kind of roller coaster ride of storytelling mm -hmm. you know and i think I, on the surface, it's that's where you want to focus. Not necessarily a succinct narrative, but at least a cohesive tone so you keep people engaged. I think a very good example of, uh, well, at least from, from, from my tastes, I think the Sembrists are a great example of a band who really has a, a set style. Uh, I'm had sorry, a set I, just, style from, I want to jump back really quick. I said oh, cohesive sure. tone, I meant cohesive sound. Tone can fluctuate. Well, yes, Sorry, can I contradicted myself. Right. Anyway, you were saying Decembrist. Uh, uh, as I was saying about Decembrist, they have a very set style, as you can hear from their whole shtick as a band. They've had this from day one. All their albums tend to be in this kind of uh, Irish folk style, but it's a very unique brand that they've created. It's very consistent on all their albums. At the same time, mood varies wildly. They have their tantamount to jigs. At the same time, that still sounds within the same style as their very... Uh, very soft, delicate, um, uh, well, their version of the introverted type song, you know, from a folk perspective, where it's just Colin Malloy and a guitar crooning along, maybe with Jenny on the organ. And that itself is kind of what I want from an album. I want something new as a whole. At the same time, I do want it kind of reinvent itself, but not too much. Face it. We're, fick we're fickle people. Yeah. <laughs> we're very fickle. We're very um, fans in general tend to be fickle. They they want what they they want something tangible and they want a cohesive art piece. The problem with music as opposed to a movie is that mu music will very subtly s slip away from you. I think when a, with a movie, you know exactly the moment when it will jump the shark. Yeah, it's very obvious. It's it's obvious to you know as dim-witted as they come. It's pretty obvious. Uh, but when it comes to music, it's it's a lot more subtle. It creeps up on you. And then after a while, you realize that what you've been listening to suddenly isn't the same anymore. Because perhaps the artist checked out, you know? And that's very common when you're writing music, is you could say, well, it still sounds musical. But that isn't the end of discussion. Just because it sounds musical and because it sounds good is not the end of the art form. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this. Because clearly, every album we've done is certifiably music. Obviously. So... We, we've not hit that zero point yet. Yeah. So obviously... Mm. We've gotten close, shush. Yeah, we have gotten close. Don't think about the bad stuff. Don't um, think about it. But I think this is a good point to jump into getting ready for next week. Um, we probably will come back to this and go more in depth with the two different sides of this. 
Um, however, I would like to attack our um, brain. Our um, not attack our brain. Attack our spam. Spam. Marvelous. What a website it is. This web page provides useful facts to us. Keep it up. Who's us? He's speaking for many. Who are the many? The many are Nucad Routier 2013 Terrifying. That's... I don't even know what that is. I don't know. I don't you, even know you, what you, product they're selling us You here. couldn't read the French in the lyrics today, I could, so. but it's been so long since I've taken French that I would have to, like, just keep repeating it in my head and do it word by word, and it would take ten minutes. Yeah, let's, please not French. insult our French listeners. I don't want to do that. Oh, yes. how many of them? Who knows? Uh, nope, nope, French Canadians. Just We're say in the French population zone. and assume the best. Okay. Yeah, right, exactly. Okay. All of France. And besides, you've insulted them before. <laughs> and overseas territories. That's also true. Um, in previewing for next week, um, we have our guest for the end of November-ish. Um, this is a band that we have already promoted on the podcast, who I'm quite fond of, who Steve and John are also quite fond of, just based on what they've talked about, the one song I... Did an article on it's circadian clock they will be joining us they will as a band be bringing us an album which is first the last time we had a full band the wasties we just kind of had a chat did an interview which was a ton of fun and they performed some songs this time around we're going to get to chat with the band and they're going to help us review a record it's called danger days by my chemical romance it came out about two years ago i believe it's my chemical romance's final record they broke up and gerard way the lead singer has a solo record now but this is their last record as a band, and uh, we will be attacking that with the band together, as well as we'll have some of their music as well. And that'll be on December 3rd, since now we are on a Wednesday schedule. Yeah. So, I mean, keep an eye on that. It's technically the end of December. Our guests are a little shifted, but um, we will be on point in December with the return of Nelson Lugo. Go, go, go. Completing the trilogy. Yeah, um, so he can win the contest. Is this of being is completing the trilogy? Yeah, is, I don't oh, know if it's of revenge his, of his appearances. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's Revenge of the Sith, which would be a terrible trilogy, or if it's Return of the Jedi, which I know he appreciates more, which would to be the, the the better of the trilogies, or it might be another kind of trilogy okay, that has so nothing to do with Star Wars. And you guys can cut me off at any point. Actually, here. I'll cut you off right now because I thought the trilogy was originally referring to the trilogy of, of the epic pie cast, in which case he is the first of that trilogy and is so far the winner of that trilogy because he's been on the most, the most yes. well Schaefer's gonna beat him I mean he, he wants said. to really I don't know schedule wise I, I would know. love for Schaefer to beat him the num- I'd love numbers don't compete. prove it not yet anyway on that note thank you guys for listening as always um, we appreciate you listening and remember music is life and, and life, life is, is good, good.